Alrighty, thank you for listening to the My Age podcast, a podcast that brings you conversations with people from all walks of life using music to plot a map from their early years to how they got to where they are now. Uh, apologies for starting this episode or this intro off um, on a low point. A really good friend lost his partner to cancer the other day uh, and I found out this morning. Um, so, look, uh, go, go hug your... Go hug your friends and family and your brothers and sisters and your kids and everybody that you give a fuck about and appreciate them. Or if you can't hug them, give them a call. Uh, Don't just send them an SMS. Actually give them a call. Um, Tell them you dig them. Tell them you appreciate them. Um, Yeah, because it can all be over so soon and so suddenly. And yeah. So, okay. Um, hope you hope your New Year's off to a cracking start. Um, surviving the hot or the cold, depending on where you are. It's been humid as fuck around of late, um, but that's part and parcel with Australian summer. Um, trying to stick to the New Year's resolution of two podcasts a month. And if you were playing thus far, you'd notice that this is the second one this month. Mid, mid-month, we had a great old yarn with Doug Smith. Um, and this one's with a good friend who I'll introduce in a second. Um, it could be a bit difficult for me to maintain to a month, but I'm going to stick with it. Well, hopefully stick with it. Because I'm actually starting a second podcast. Because, you know, I, th- I think I've mentioned this before, but whatever. Um, I don't have enough time as it is anyhow, so why not start a second one? Um, bit different formats. Um, actually recording it this weekend over the Australia Day long weekend uh, bang a couple of episodes out we'll see how that goes uh, keep you posted on all the socials and all that kind of jazz but hopefully if you like well if you listen to this you should like it it's not a, it's not a uh, interview slash conversation oh, it's a conversation but it's not an interview style kind of yeah just watch this digital space uh, on today's episode Jai Alatis. Now, it's not a name you may necessarily know unless you're a mover and shaker. Then you're probably all over it. Um, but chances are, if you listen to this, you've either brought an album from a band on his label or you've watched his doco, which was called 1994. He's a legit go-getter, uh, as we discuss in this episode. And it's, it's a fucking long episode. Uh, I'll warn you now. We... Oh, how we ramble. We both ramble. Um, and I edited the fuck out of it as well because like Joe lives in LA now, which we, he discusses. Um, and so I never get to see him. And so this was kind of like a catch up for the two. I think we chatted for like a bit over three hours. Yeah. Yeah. Three hours it was. Um, and I had, I cut it down because there was just a lot of shit that we were just talking about. It had no relevance to anything. And we're just using it as sort of a catch-up between the two of us, which is always fun. Um, you're in for a real treat, if I do say so myself. Uh, song selection-wise, look, everyone picks crack, cracking jams, and Jai's is definitely no exception. Um, there's a jam that will stick out like a sore thumb. Uh, and if you fast-forward it and you hate it, and, sorry, if you hate it and you fast-forward it, that's fine with me. I don't. Um, I don't blame you because I definitely know I, when I, if I re-listen to it, which I probably will, 
um, I'll be fast-forwarding it. Um, anyhow, stay gold, stay cold. Speak to you at the end of the episode. Cool. Cool. All right, Jaya Lattice. Uh, it is pronounced a lattice, yeah? Yep. Yep, cool. I've, I've never actually said it out loud until no, now. I um, I I had to say it to PayPal yesterday because I needed them to call me back. Yeah. And I, I say Jaya Lattice, right? But yes. I always get Jaya Lattice, and that's actually fine. And I actually don't know the – I don't know the actual correct way to say it because my dad changes it all the time as well. So, I, look, I'm just happy if people just try their best. Yeah, have a crack. Yeah. And if and look, worst comes to worst, they can fall back on Jai Par. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> speaking Jai of, Jai Lattice, record label owner, podcaster, business bro, which I only found that one out just seconds ago. Uh, um, yeah, filmmaker. Still, yeah, filmmaker. Um, half of the DJ duo, Best Friends DJs. Director. RIP indeed. Director and co-founder, sorry, founder, or I guess co-founder yeah. and CEO of Locals. Mm-hmm. Have I missed anything? No. That's, no, that's about it. Yeah. So do you, do you hate that bro, the business, was the business bro thing just a, something that was dumb that should have just been short? I mean, I, I forgot about, I, I actually forgot I wrote that. I know, and, yeah, I wrote, and I wrote that. I thought you were just calling me one and I was kind of like, yeah. that's fine, whatever. And then yeah. I, remember I actually wrote that. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Which <laughs> it's on. Um, okay, if you, if you've got any contacts at City Morning Herald, hit them up because that's where it is. Oh, really? They yeah, call us me. Oh, I didn't. I think you've referred to yourself as that, and then they commented on the fact you referred to yourself as that. Okay, I think. Yeah, I think I put it on like a business card or something. Yeah, or um, we had this mobile app development company called Zap back like five years ago, six years ago. And that, because there, there was a bunch of us that were founders and I was like a busy dev person. So that's what I called myself. I think. Business bro. Yeah. It, like, that's, yeah. That's awesome. That's cool. I, I'll, yeah. look, let it be known. I won't, I won't refer to that ever again. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so we've been mates for a fairly long time now. Yeah. But yeah. Before more than half did, my life. Yeah, which is and more than half my life, which is just it's a mind blowing thing. Um, yeah. And we'll get into that obviously, but tell us, tell us where it all began. Tell us like where'd you grow up for the people that don't know, and what were your parents into, and all that kind of jazz. Okay, so I was born rich. No, not really, but <laughs> I, I was born in Coogee. So oh, okay. So my my dad um, is Indonesian. My mum's a white Australian, and my dad came over in the late seventies. Um, I think it was late seventies and the only way he got in, the only way he was able to get into the country was Gough Whitlam was in power. And when Gough Whitlam was in power, there was a small window where they took immigration, um, from different countries. And he was able to get into Australia because my, my dad doesn't come from money, but his family, Indonesia, his uncle was a foreign minister of Indonesia for like a while. Okay. Yeah. And, um, diplomatically somehow like, found a loophole for my dad to, to get into cool. the country. So did he, did he want to mm-hmm. come in or did the opportunity arise and he jumped on it? You know, I should know this better. Um, <laughs> my, my dad actually, he's born in Indonesia, but he actually grew up in, in Singapore. Um, he had a kind of like tumultuous childhood where like he didn't have the best relationship with his parents and he left home at a, at a super early age. He didn't go past eighth grade in school. And yeah, just like ended up working on a boat 
and that boat was kind of his ticket to, to come to Australia. He wasn't like in a boat as in like smuggling himself in. He was yeah. like working on one. Um, but yeah, okay. he, yeah, I guess he wanted a, wanted a fresh start and to, you know, get away from his family. Cause he was also like his, his family, like Alatas is, you know, it's a Muslim sounding name. His family were, he was raised as a Muslim. Okay. And he had zero interest in that, in, in religion at all. Um, so like his favorite thing to do, his favorite thing still to do is like drink beers and like eat bacon. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like very, very, very not Muslim. Yeah. So he, um, it's like, you know, as soon as he could get away from his family and he did, he, um, you know, just kind of denounced his religion and, um, yeah, came to Australia and just started, you know, created his, created his own new life for himself. Did that have repercussions to denounce his religion back home? You know, like, like yeah, so I hope that he is he won't listen to this because he doesn't have easy internet. And I hope that none of his no one else listens to it from his family. But you'd be really surprised with like all these different alatuses that I've never met ever. They claim to be my cousin that like find me on like Facebook and Twitter and like LinkedIn. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um but I do remember that when his parents, uh, so my my, grand, my grandma and my grandpa from the Indonesian side, um, I first met them when I was probably like seven or eight years old and they came to stay with us in Sydney for a, probably like a month. And he, even though he was like, you know, a grown man with a family and all this stuff, he was still kind of scared of them and scared of yeah. like basically not, um, but he didn't want to disappoint them. So he pretended yeah. that he was still religious and a Muslim. So like basically like we every Friday night in our house, we would have like ham and pineapple pizza. When they were staying with us, we had to order prawn and pineapple pizzas. I remember that for one month, I had always had to eat prawn and pineapple. Yeah. Um, and I hated it. My dad couldn't not drink beer. So he would say to them, we had this like bowling club on our street. Yep. That was like where he'd hang out every day. Um, and he would tell them that he was going to like a meeting or whatever he was going to do. But he would just go to the bowling club drink a bunch of beers because he couldn't drink at home anymore because he couldn't have beers yeah. in the fridge and then um, just take a bunch of like fisherman's friends before he get home. <laughs> to mask the set. There you go. <laughs> and were they, were they none the wiser? I don't know, to be honest. I was, I was like seven or eight years old. Um, okay. Yeah. But, I, you know, I think he got away with it. Yeah, cool. It was just funny because he was just like he wasn't – it was just when they were there, he just, he, I don't know, he just slipped back into something where he just felt like he had to – yeah, you want to disappoint them, um, so you know. So I ended up going. To, I ended up going to like mosques and stuff when they were only the only time ever was when they were in Australia for this one month, and I had to pretend. And I had to pretend like he was like you have to. He would kind of give me like this crash course in what to say and how to do all this stuff just like two days before they arrived, like it was like a normal thing. Wow, do you know what I mean? So yeah, absolutely, it was good though because I mean, look, I'm not religious at all. I'm an atheist. Yep. No, my mum's not religious, my dad's not religious, my, my sister, we're not a religious family, but it was good to have those sorts of experiences at an early age so we could actually make a decision for ourselves. And that's what my parents always said to us. So, like, you guys can be whatever you want. We don't care. But, you know, make an informed decision. Yeah, so, so sorry, born in Kuji, Indonesian dad, um, white Anglo mum, and we lived there for about three years and then we started moving like more west so then from there it was like the inner west uh annandale where i went to primary school okay then um annandale north primary school and then 
it was Kingsgrove. And this is a good story, actually. Um, and that's where it was the Kingsgrove days when I first kind of got in contact with you back when I was a teenager. But um, the reason we ended up in Kingsgrove was because my, my parents never had money, so we were always renting. And they, you know, they couldn't afford to buy a house. We were renting in Leichhardt, and that's why I went to Annandale North Primary School. Annandale North Primary School was a very affluent white school. Like I was one of three brown people there. No, I was just not even brown, just like different ethnicity. Just not white bread. Yeah, yeah. I had a half Chinese friend, Jeremy Sung. Um, he was like my best friend from school, and there was another kid called David Farnuku who was like Pacific Islander, and no one yeah. else in our grade was – everyone else was just white pretty much. And – Actually, that's not true. We had Elias, who was like Egyptian or something. But basically, I, I, you know, I'd never heard of like a Lebanese person before. Um, yep. It's cool. So when I was like eight years old, my dad plays a lotto a lot. My dad won the lottery. Wow. He got, he got all the numbers. And Jesus. I remember him telling us, he's like, won the lottery, we're going to buy a house. And I was just like, oh, my God, we won the lottery. And turned out so did like 40 other people. I was about to say, how many people do you have to split? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So whatever the pool was going to be, and this is like 93, 94, uh, whatever the pool was going to be, he ended up getting $25,000, right? Oh, dude. <laughs> dude. So, you know, they wanted to stay in the area, in the inner west, because we, we liked that area. It was like, you know, a nice, safe yep. area. We had friends and, and stuff there, family close by. Uh, and just we couldn't afford anything. So place they ended up being able to afford the first place. Like, you know, it just kept going every weekend. We just go further and further out. Yeah, and, further um, west, yeah. Yeah, and then they found a place in, in Bexley. Yeah. And, yeah, that they could afford. And then, yeah, moved the family, like year four, year five, to, to Bexley and then started going to Kingsgrove. Um, so, yeah, but, but one of the first things I remember musically with my parents was when we lived in Coogee, we had a next door neighbor. I actually remember this. I don't know how I remember this. It was my parents telling me about just, it. Yeah. Just one of those things. Yeah. Cause um, we had this next door neighbor cause we were living in flats in Coogee, like right on the beach. Yeah. And the next door neighbor would always play guitar. And he would like, he was, he wasn't in our, in our apartment. He was the apartment over and a bit more elevated, but I, I'd, I'd be playing in the, the backyard and, and he'd be playing guitar. And that guy, that guitarist, was actually the guitarist for Mental as Anything. Awesome. And I was never a huge fan of that, but I remember mum telling me, that, you know, we used to live next door to the, to the guitarist for Mental as Anything. And he, he was the first person I remember playing music to me. Okay. Um, so that, that, that's a vivid memory that I have. Um, yeah. And then as far as what they were listening to, like mum was a huge fan of like reggae. So a lot of reggae. Okay. Um, but also she loves like David Bowie and Bob Dylan. And they were the record. Yeah, it's really funny because I didn't appreciate it at the time. And then my dad, and I don't know how my dad, I mean, this would probably be a more interesting podcast than my dad because he's just such a <laughs> strange guy. And I just don't really know much about him. Like, but my dad, um, my dad likes kind of like classic 70s sort of stuff, right? Yep. So like one of his favorite artists is like Jethro Tull. Um, but okay. one of his, like, I remember the one artist I remember just him smashing, like, was Neil Young, always Neil Young. Like, on a Sunday Fantastic. afternoon, it was harvest time. <laughs> and my dad is such a, he's a person of, uh, not principle, what word am I looking for? He did habit. He's a creature of habit. 
Okay. So he yep. just does the same thing like every week. Like it's just it's just this pattern that he has and he just does the same thing. So Harvest just got smashed in our house and then um, the other one that he loved was Fleetwood Mac. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah, it was like Fleetwood Mac, Neil Young, Bob Dylan, David Bowie, and then like, you know, Peter Tosh and Bob Marley like so did, you, did your parents both love reggae or was it more of your mum's thing? It's definitely more my mum, but my dad tolerated it. So okay. my dad, my, it could be played in the house. And like they, they all, they both tolerated each other's music. Like they, they okay. liked it, but dad was definitely more passionate about the Neil Young Fleetwood Mac stuff. Mum was definitely more passionate about the reggae. Did either of them play instruments or sing or, you know, no. like, no, they weren't musical? Not musical. Um, my dad just had really strong fingers and would always like, definitely had rhythm. I always yeah, hear him, like, you know, drumming to whatever was playing um, in the kitchen, which is his favorite place to be. But no, they, they didn't play instruments or musical at all. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So, what song have we got? That's a that's a hell of a list to pick from. Yeah. So, I, I think the 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 song that I'm I I vividly again I remember this personally, and my mum tells me that it was a song that kind of like stuck to me was um, George Harrison. Got my mindset on you. Oh, powerful song! Yes, <laughs> and yeah. yeah, it was a song that. Um, she Fantastic to, film clip too. She used to hundred oh, percent. She used to yeah. play me when I was a kid um, because she said it was the first time I reacted to music. So I, I was a baby. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, in the she she said that I'd be like in the high chair and I'd be dancing in the high chair, yeah. like, and that was the song. Somehow that was always that song um, managed to get me going. So. Yeah, and I, I mean, I still love that song to this day. It's a great song. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's listen to it. Cool. I got my mindset on you. I got my mindset on you. I got my mindset on you. Got my mindset on you. But it's going to take money.
that's, that's um, a great you know, song. A, a, another thing with that song though is like I didn't know. I mean, I got into the Beatles later on in life. Yep. Um, but I didn't know that. I mean, obviously I was a fucking baby, but I didn't know that George Harrison was a Beatle. I just yeah, George I, Harrison I, was just George Harrison. It was just a guy. Like I, I reckon I would have been. It would have been like 88, 89. I think we've talked about it with someone else on this podcast, but I think it's the first time we played it. But I think I, I honestly remember that film clip. Like I used to get up and watch Rage every morning. Yeah. And um, it would have been 88, 89 when it came out. And, yeah, like loving the Beatles and then seeing this guy but never making the connection. Yeah, right. Like it's just a fantastic jam. Yeah. It's a great song. So what, what else was on the list you could have picked? Like what, um, like, what were some close runners up? I mean – the I think the only other one I, I would probably say and it's it's just it's very generic, but um you know, like Three Little Birds by Bob Marley or No Woman No Cry, because I just remember yeah, mum would always play that. And mum used to take me as well to like um like like local reggae concerts that like in parks and festivals and stuff, just as a kid, you know. Um but not where were they? Where were they happening? Oh, you're in the inner city, so I guess that kind of makes sense. Yeah, and it wasn't. It, I don't think it was because like they were trying to get, like they weren't trying to get music in my blood or anything. I think it was just like, so, like my mom had me when she was 22, so yep. she just had to do something with me. Like yeah. she wanted to go, so I was like, I would just take Jai. Jai just has to come. Cool. Moving right along. Um, I mean, you've already kind of delved into your into your story, but when did you move? To, when did you say you moved out of the inner west? into um bexley how are we then i'm gonna say that was like i was like eight or nine yeah um 92 93 was about okay at that time yeah yeah sick and what like yeah what was the music what was kind of happening around the house musically like um was there a was there a defining moment where you, like, you saw something or listened to something whether you saw a film clip or listened to something on the radio where um you're like this is it like this is this is my thing kind of thing yeah so but my parents music their their taste never changed it still hasn't so yeah i mean the, the only the only aside i would say to, to mum is that but to my, my dad again creature of habit listens to all the same shit my um my mum actually got really into pop punk because of me because of you yeah that's fantastic just because I'd make like mix CDs and stuff for the car, you know, like when I'm driving yeah. her car around. Um, but then she got like one of her favorite bands and actually she doesn't know about, I guess, like any of this allegation stuff, but one of her favorite bands is, is brand new. She loves brand new. Um, Cause we put out the first two records in Australia through Bloy Park and like she'd never heard of brand new, but um, you know, just because we had the CDs around and then whenever they'd come to the, come to Australia, she'd want to go. So I'd get her tickets and like take her backstage and all that sort of stuff. So she actually really likes, like she loves Kiss Chasey. She loves something with numbers. Um, yeah, she, got it, she just got into like all our bands, which is cool. Um, but yeah, but the, me, the first kind of like artist that I remember truly loving outside of the George Harrison thing was definitely Michael Jackson. Oh, how could you not? Yeah, 100% Michael Jackson. I just idolized him and it was probably like the, the era that I got in was, um, would have been bad. Like I remember yeah, right. getting the bad cassette tape yep. um, and then going back to Thriller as I got a little bit older. Um, and, I, and, and I knew, I knew a bunch of those songs, but it was definitely bad for me. It was just like, 
it hit me right at the time when I could be like, okay, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to start getting, I'm going to start getting into, get into this. But did you, did you get as far back as the early Jackson five stuff or it was just kind oh, of. Oh yeah. I went, I went deep because. Good. Good. <laughs> and I, like, maybe I didn't realize it at the time, but it's like, it's a real like signal of who I am now. I love researching stuff and I love like going to find out more and, and going, going deeper on things. Yeah. Going deeper. Yeah. It's just one of my favorite things to do about, about anything. Like anything that I get interested in, I just like go balls deep. Whole hog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, with the with the Michael Jackson stuff, it was like definitely it was like the bad the bad record. And then I remember Moonwalker, the movie. Okay, I remember yep. going to the video store and getting Moonwalker. And um, you know, like, have you seen Moonwalker? I haven't. I've played the video game, but I'm not. I've not. Watch yeah, movie. I also played the video game a lot and I loved it. But um, yeah. so he made this movie, like this kind of straight to VHS, I guess, movie um, yeah. with Joe Pesci in it, and it's it's weird. He turns into a robot at the end. It's it's cool. It, yeah, it's cool as a kid. Um, but there's a there's a whole bunch of his songs in it, and the the very beginning, the opening intro is like kind of um, like a retrospective of his career up to that moment, kind of. Is, 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 he, is he playing Michael Jackson? Yeah, he plays Michael Jackson. Okay, right. It's like the premise of the film is basically it's the first little bit is this weird part where it's this retrospective and then it goes to him and he's got like these two little kids that are like his friends and there's this... I bet they are. Yeah. And <laughs> Joe Pesci is like this bad guy and Joe Pesci is like kidnapping these kids and Michael Jackson has to save the kids. And then Michael Jackson okay. turns into like a robot and like destroys everyone and then turns into a spaceship and like flies away. With the kids. I think the kids are there. Yeah. <laughs> the hopefully, kids. Sa- hopefully he saved them and didn't destroy them. Yeah, he didn't destroy the kids. Yeah. But yeah, so, th- so there, was, there was that. And then um, I don't know if you remember this either, but in the early 90s, there was this miniseries called The Jacksons in American Dream. Do you ever see that? No. You should, what, you should go... If you like Michael Jackson or any of the Jackson Five stuff, it's one of the best miniseries ever. Is it? Sorry, is it a? Um, it's, it's actors. A, it's it's actors. I think you know. I think I have seen it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like everything from like their childhood to like him leaving the Jackson Five. It touches on like uh, recording Thriller um, yep. when he got the, you know, that that famous Pepsi commercial where he yeah, burned his, his hair scalp. went on fire. Yep. Yeah, there's yep. that. And then, like, he rejoined the, uh, the Jacksons for, like, one world tour. And that's kind of where it ends. Yep. But um, it's, like, it's an awesome it's an, it's an awesome miniseries. And because they've got, like, Michael at different uh, phases of his life, they've got, like, these different kids that play him, but they're so good. And it's actually them singing and stuff as well, you know? Okay. Yeah. Um, it's incredible. So that just, that just set me on the – that just set me on the, on the Michael Jackson train. And then the Michael Jackson train – got me into like a lot of like R&B and kind of more black music. Okay. But then like, you know, early 90s, I was definitely into R&B and, uh, you know, Arrested Development I was into as well. But a lot of stuff like Boys to Men. Boys to Men was another one for me that was massive. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, like Salt and Pepper and yeah, a whole bunch of stuff. And how, like what year was it? These like early 90s. This is early 90s. So this is kind of like the, the New Jack Swing uh, R&B thing was like somehow massive with me and I think a lot of it had to do it was culture as well right so like yeah. I how old like I wasn't that old I was only like probably like eight seven or eight years old but yeah. you know I loved 
kind of like that black American culture because I play basketball. Yes. So, because of basketball, I mean, basketball was massive in the early mid nineties. Um, yeah, so I played like NBA Jam, played all the games. I played basketball uh, at school and on weekends uh, in the backyard. So, you know, I'd watch those NBA Jam sessions videos. Um, and the, all the whole soundtrack is, yeah, all those bands. Yeah. So I was just oh, really so into the yeah. culture, you know, and, and just like even even TV shows like, um, you know, Fresh Prince of Bel Air. And hang on, Mr. Cooper. Hang on, Mr. Cooper. And when Mr. Cooper yeah. joins the Golden State Warriors on a 10 day contract, do you remember that? And, yeah, and um, and Charles Barkley dunks yeah. on him, stuff like that. Like it was just ingrained yeah. in the culture. So, yeah. um, I don't know, I don't know why I remember that episode. It was awesome. Yeah, and he's having dreams about him all the time. He's just getting, yeah. like, getting, <laughs> getting nightmares. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. So, are we going with bad, or is there a hidden, is there a deep cut that you want to go with off the bad album? Yeah, Bad's definitely not my favourite song okay. on the album. It was just that record. My or you're going to go something different. My karaoke song oh. on that record is Man in the Mirror. Fantastic. Surely yeah. there's footage of that, by the way. There, there definitely is somewhere. I, I sing it all the time. It's like it's, it's, I pretend like I'm not a good singer at all, but. Yeah. No one is. I can do that song and I'm confident good. in that song. So. <laughs> that's, see, that's the trick. That's the trick. I've been doing, well, I did old music for old people for five years yeah i can't sing yeah but you just be, you just get up with confidence and that's half the battle yeah now you guys were great yeah well yeah i think i sang a song with you guys once i think you did but god knows what it was. Oh, i want to say it was blink okay i can't remember Maybe ataris yeah yeah so, man in the mirror man in the mirror um and then um it's man in the mirror but my favorite song on the record is um, what's the second song called? Um, the way you make me feel. Oh, dude, that's I mean, a jam. Look, the whole thing's a jam. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. That's that's the best song on the record. Man in the Mirror is just kind of like um, it's the joy song. Yeah, it's got a place in my heart. But I think yeah. Did you like? Did it? Did you know what you, like when you were getting into it? Did you know what you were singing, or did, was it just like you liked the song, you liked the beat, you liked the the melodies and all that kind of jazz, and the lyrics were just fodder no, to I get knew. the melody out? I, I was paying attention to the lyrics, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Like Man in the Mirror, for example. Like when I was a kid, I probably I probably didn't understand that he like exactly what he was talking about. Yeah. Um, I just thought it was about like making sure people weren't poor or something. Okay. But. But yeah, I, I'm, I've always been like a, a lyrics person. Yeah, I wish I was. I'm definitely not, but I wish I was. Yeah, like yeah, which we yeah, that's a, that's another conversation for another time. But I, <laughs> it's like oh, again, singing with old music for old people. I had to research lyrics and go, oh, is that what they sing? Yeah. I just used to mutter words, and because I listen to I listen to the music aspect of everything, and yeah, the lyrics just kind of gets yeah. washed over. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, well, cool. Cool. You gone? No, I was going to say like I def- I'm definitely guilty of that as well. As far as like thinking they were saying something for the longest period of time, and then actually when I see the lyrics, I'm like, ah, oh. yeah, okay, that's I what I'm saying. I'm saying the wrong thing for 20 years. Yep, longer. Yeah, I still do that. Like I'll pick up. Like I'm doing another. Um, a friend and I are going to do another podcast. Hmm. Uh, that focuses on mid 90s punk rock. Yep. And yeah, look, we, we're going to get deep into that. Don't you worry. <laughs> but um. Well, hopefully we get deep into it. It's, you know, you, you control the ship. But, um, yeah, like looking at a particular band whose native tongue wasn't English and going, 
oh, that's what they're saying. Like it makes no sense, but that's what they're saying because yeah. it, medically, yeah. Yeah, like, well, like Mill and Colin. Yeah, like Mill and Colin. Yeah. <laughs> it's Mill and Colin. <laughs> yeah. No fun at all as well. They're oh, always like, of- yeah, you're always like, what, yeah. are you, what are you guys talking about? Yeah, what do you, that, that sentence doesn't really fit together, but look, <laughs> their English is a bazillion times better than my Swedish, so what are you going to do? Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Man in the mirror, let's listen to it. I'm going to make a change for once in my life. It's going to feel real good. Make a difference, gonna make it right. As I turn up the collarbone, my favorite winter coat, this wind is blowing my mind. I see the kids in the street, but not enough to eat. Who am I to be blind, pretending not to see them?
so how do you how do you get from Michael Jackson, um, Bill with DeVoe, Salt and Pepper, and all yeah. that kind of stuff? Yeah. To let, let's be real, the next I'm going to just assume because I know you that um, <laughs> the next step is mid '90s punk rock or punk rock in general. Yeah. So like, how did transition? How did guitars get introduced? Essentially, right? Yes. Yes. I I remember this vividly as well. Because it was again a couple of like lifestyle things that just happened. I think a big one was actually moving to Bexley, um, like, okay. like leaving leaving Annandale. Um, but there was there's a couple of key key things that I remember, and one of them was I didn't like a lot of people got into alternative music because of Nirvana. Yep, and that makes complete sense. However. I was just like a little bit, I don't know, it, it just didn't really come to me yet, Nirvana. And my first introduction to like, apart from I say mentors or anything, because he was a neighbor, but um, mm. it was actually Green Day. Okay. And it was Dookie. And the yep. way that I heard about it was the TV commercials. I don't know if you remember. No. They had these television commercials, Dookie did. Um, so Green Day did of Dookie and it was like, they showed some of the video for like, Basket case and when Basket I come around yeah. at Longview, and I was like, "Well, oh, this is kind of cool." But I kind of saw it. But I didn't really pay much attention to it. And then one of my buddies, I went away with his family. This is probably like year five, and I went away with his family for like a holiday. And he had Dookie, and I think by this stage, because he also <laughs> had insomnia, because they kind of just rushed that second i mean you know the, the, the follow-up out right it's like yeah, one year later to, came out. to ride the wave yeah yeah so he had both and i remember um he had a discman and he gave me dookie to listen to and he also like had you know the lyrics were in the book yeah. and i thought the artwork was really cool and all this, this sort of stuff and i just remember reading the lyrics to longview and i just was like it just changed my life i was like oh my god this this is incredible but i didn't know it was punk right i still th- yeah. i thought it was grunge so right, okay. I, I always considered Green Day a grunge band, and then and then so I went from I went from Green Day that got me in and got me hooked and I loved the lyrics and you know my mum would always be like, don't listen to that stuff. You know, now she loves Green Day, but back yeah. then she's like, oh, I don't want you listening to like this is terrible. It wasn't it wasn't terrible at all. Was it the music or the lyrical content? Probably lyrical because content. Like, yeah, because hearing about like hearing the word masturbation in a song, yeah. especially when you're young, is like. Right, I don't think my parents would be okay with me listening to this. Yeah, like, and it's so it's so clear. Like, it's not like it's just a mumbled word. It's like it's so it's there. Exactly, and and to be honest with you, like I don't even think I knew what that meant yet. A lot of the things, like even like I'd, I'd go to my mum and be like, um, "Mum, what's a whore?" You know? Yeah. And, right. <laughs> <laughs> and she she'd explain a lot to me, like because I'm. My mum's quite like liberal thinker, you know. She doesn't yeah. get offended easily by anything. Um, so she would she would explain this stuff to me. Um, she she just didn't like anything that was too noisy, really. Okay. But I, got, I think back, Green Day's not really noisy, but yeah. So I don't know. It, it was it was Green Day that was the first thing that got me. So I remember the TV commercials, and then I remember my friend giving me um, letting me listen anyway to to Dookie and to Insomniac, and I went out and got Dookie. But then what ended up happening was then I kind of like. I came, I kind of took a few steps back. So instead of that being my jump off point into like punk rock, I then the next record that I went and got and I got like became my life was Nevermind. 
So I went from Dookie to Nevermind. Backwards. Yeah. And okay. then and then it was Nevermind. Um, Is that because you thought grunge was like because you, you thought they were the same kind of I thought of it was the same thing. Sub- yeah. yeah. I thought it was the same thing. I was like, where did this start? And this is also, you know, pre-internet. And so, yeah, so I I found Ivana and, you know, I changed schools and a bunch of, um, you know, the kids in my new school who I'm still, you know, my best mates to this day, um, you know, had older brothers. My friends at Annandale kind of didn't. Um, they They had older brothers that, you know, would smoke pot or surf or yep. skateboard and before I was skating and surfing and um, that was kind of, yeah, like then I started hearing about bands like, you know, the Smashing Pumpkins um, and Pearl Jam and, and all this kind of grunge, this kind of grunge stuff. Yep. And I got, so I got into all that, but definitely like I'd say that, that the biggest was Nirvana, Green Day, Nirvana and the Smashing Pumpkins to a degree. And then, and then it was, um, yeah, all the 90, all the punk rock stuff. And that, that really came from bodyboarding videos for me. Yeah, of course it did. Yeah. Yeah. So I probably started, like I started skateboarding when I was in like year six, year seven. Yep. But I wasn't really watching many like skate films. Um, like I was watching like the 411 videos and stuff, but I wasn't paying that much attention to the soundtrack. But I remember I got into bodyboarding when I was like 12 or 13. Yep. Did you bodyboard as a kid? No. Oh, no. Long, no, just no. Okay. Like, like more than like nothing more than literally just riding the riding the bus to the uh, to the um, you know, just going straight. Yeah, if that makes sense. Like, I just thought I just yeah. thought you may have because like you know my whole thing growing up when I was in Bexley, like living nowhere near the beach, Cronulla is the closest. And yeah. you know Saturday morning for us was like walking to Hersel Station, jumping on the train, and you know you had all these kids jump on it like Mortdale, yeah, um, you know Oatley and all that sort of stuff. So I grew up in Milpera which is um, our closest train station was like East Hills. And for me, to, and we used to do it, like we used to get up and go to the beach like on public holidays or yeah. whatever, uh, not public holidays, um, people free days. But for us to get to the beach, to get to Cronulla, you'd be up at 5.30, you'd have to beg one of your parents to drop you to the station. Yeah. Get, yeah. get to the East Hill station at 6, head into Central or one of those, Yeah, jump onto the... Yeah, the southern blue like the crown yeah. yeah the blue line and then head back out yeah, and it was a it was a two hour it was easily two hours yeah yeah like it makes it was sense. a hike yeah i always thought you were in mortale for some reason no i was yeah a bit further west paul and um dan and all, three out of five ballpark members were from that area but yeah. i wasn't okay yeah. okay gotcha gotcha um so yeah so basically uh bodyboarding videos there was this one bodyboarding video called Propaganda, and I still think it has one of the best soundtracks to this day. Um, I've actually got a, I've got a playlist on my Spotify which I just made myself because it's not an official playlist for this movie because it's so niche. Yeah. Um, but I remember it started with the first song was um, this band called Pride Bowl. Oh yeah. And the song Impriatory. Impriatory. Um, do you know that song? It's on the I think it's on the Dripping from the Past album. Uh, incredible song and that, that kicked it off yeah. and then I'm pretty sure the next song is Violins by Lag Lag. Oh, wow. So the, the soundtrack is, the, these, are, these are the songs, there's, there's three Lag Lag songs in it which are uh, Violins, Sick and Rifle. There are two strung out songs on it which are Firecracker and Solitaire. Good. Um, there's Snuff, Nick Northern. So essentially yeah. you just go to Fat Records comp. This guy. Yeah. Uh, 
Um, that was the snuff song for a while, wasn't it? Yeah. Just like, I just can't move before that snuff song. It's on such it. a good song. Yeah. Oh, very good. Um, what else was there? There was Pride Bowl. Well, I can look at it right now. I've got it. Uh, there's Mill and Colin on it. But it's the Mill and Colin song I've actually never found because the way that the song is credited in the video is it's the wrong song. And I've always tried to I've always tried to find it, and it's not on any of the albums, so I don't know where. I might have been on one of those um, like pick your nose singles or something, you know. Yeah, well, they did. Um, it could be on the what was the compilation they did? On the melancholy, the melancholy collection. Collection, yeah, yeah. It could be on that. Um, do you remember a band called Turtlehead? No. They're from Scotland. Okay. They were on not Burning Heart Records. There was another, there was another label, another like a uh, European Euro label. label that wasn't Burning Heart. Do you remember what it was called? Um, that was the one that had Pride Ball signed to it. Uh, I can't remember, but they were on that label. Um, but yeah, pretty much Pride Ball strung out lag wagon. Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. It is on the tip of my tongue. Bad taste. Bad taste. They were in bad taste. With satanic surfers and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yep. So, yep. so, so that, that movie propaganda got me um, like, oh my God, hearing like violins by Lagwagon for the first time. And then just watching yeah. that movie over and over again. On my 14th birthday, just before my party, mum took me to her school, Westfields. Yep. HMV. And she bought me Lagwagon Hoss and strung out suburban teenage wasteland blues. And that Powerful. that was really my that was my real entry point, I think, to punk rock. And I remember yeah. I just played those CDs on repeat at my party um, for that for that day. And that was that was just that was that was, that was definitely my life changing moment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Two fantastic albums. Do you um I always have I always took like for me, two of the best albums from Lagwagon are Trashed and Hoss. Hmm. Would you agree with that? And if so, then what's your number one? Hoss is easily my number one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think what I found out as I went on in life is that I love pop music. Yep. Um, so anything like with a really good melody, really good lyrics, um, just a, a nice, clean pop song is like always going to is always going to gravitate to me more. And yeah. I, I just think like Hoss for Lagwagon was like their their tightest songwriting. Oh, very much so. The, how the yeah. songs were structured and, and all of that sort of stuff, uh, where I think Trash has some incredible songs, especially some incredible pop punk song, like yep. Know It All, for example. Yeah, like one of the best songs ever. Bye for Now is my favorite Light Wagon track. Really? Yeah, hands down. I don't know what my favorite. You know, my, my cliche favorite is probably May 16th because it's my birthday. Is it really? Yeah. Like every time, every year on Facebook, it pops up. I'm like, oh, Joy was just clever enough to get into May 16, like because who brought him to put their real birthday up on Facebook? No, my birthday. It, my birthday. It really is. That's fucking insane. Yeah, and I, I, I ended up becoming friends with Joey when I was doing the documentary, and I, yep. I actually can't remember what, but I, I, I'd always tell him, thank you for writing that song. Thank you for writing the song for me for my birthday. That's so cool. <laughs> It's just such a random date. It is. Yeah. It, it could have been, yeah, it could have been literally anything. Yeah. And then it's like, it's funny because, you know, Dan Bombin says the same birthday. Again, I always look at his and go, one of you, at least one of you have got to be lying. No, we both are born on that day as, um, fucking insane. as is Janet Jackson and Chris Novoselic from Nirvana. Powerful day. 
powerful day. And it all kind of ties in together. Yeah, right? There you go. That's meant to be. Um, so we're gonna let's pick a song. Like, like I can't wait. I mean, I don't know how you've narrowed down one song because you could put both albums on back to back. Yeah. It's a, uh, you know, I think I'm just I think I'm just gonna go with Violins by Lightwagon. Okay. Because that was really the song for me that like I was surprised that that song was on the radio. I was like, how is this not a hit? Like, yeah. you know? That was just it's just a it's a perfect song. It's yeah, it's and I think like it it definitely hasn't dated. Not at all. Like there's a lot of stuff you can listen to from a lot of those al- a lot of those bands and albums from back that time. And if someone put this on now, you'd be like, yeah, like it makes sense. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. yeah. So that that's definitely I'm gonna say I'm gonna say that was my defining song. And I still listen to that song all the time. Like Yeah, same here. Yeah. Awesome. Let's listen to it.
fucking what a cracking jam. It's the best. And you know that that song actually got put on a lot more bodyboarding videos as well. Like it kind of became like a bodyboarding video staple of the nineties. That song. Yeah, right. Yeah, it was just a good go-to. Yeah, and it definitely like I think it's it definitely started with propaganda, and then um, I know it was on one of the tension videos. I think, um, but yeah, it got it moved around. So why bodyboarding and not stand up? So I, I I stand up now as an adult as a as a grown man, um, <laughs> but I don't know. It was it was just like bodyboarding was kind of like a thing in the nineties. It was like okay, there was it was kind of like the it was it was seriously it was kind of like the punk rock uh, surfing in a sense. Um, like a lot of my friends did it, so that was one thing. Um, it was easier. Was it, it was kind of like the um the snowboarding to skiing kind of thing. Yeah, but I mean, it's just you know history. History doesn't look back that fondly on it, you know. Like <laughs> on bodyboarding. Yeah, like look. In, if you to look back on it, it wouldn't say that uh, bodyboarding was the snowboarding of snow sports because surfing is still snowboarding and snow sports. Um, okay, fair, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. It, it was just it was just a thing. All my friends did it. Um, yeah, and it, and like I, I loved all like the videos and the, the soundtracks for those for those films and. It was fun. Like the, the whole thing I remember that I, I liked specifically about it, even though I couldn't really enjoy those tricks, was like bodyboarding was a little bit more, was more radical in the 90s. So like, you know, okay. people were doing like big airs and doing air reverses an hour, you know, and getting deeper in the pit and you yep. could, all this sort of stuff. And that wasn't really on display in surfing. Surfing was definitely a lot of like, you know, carving and, and cutbacks and turns and, and stylish and all that sort of stuff. And yes, there were guys doing airs, like the whole Momentum crew with you know, Kelly Slater and Kalani Robin and, and all those guys, but it wasn't like what it is today. Like what kids can do in a surfboard today is just ridiculous. Um, yeah, so, yeah. so it's quite up. But back in, in the 90s, it was definitely like bodyboarding was like the sport you did to hit the lip and get air and, and do all that sort of stuff. So I don't know. I just, I just thought it was cool. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And it was a good... Well with it. Yeah, and it was good. It's a good prep um, for... It was a good prep for, you know, for surfing as well, just because you learn about the ocean and all, and all that sort of and stuff. And, yeah, how the wave's going to react and that kind of thing. Yeah. And, I mean, like, uh, this is going to kind of play into the next – this is going to play into the next part. So, I don't Steve know. Steve are fantastic. Go for it. Keep going. So, I mean, it, it was definitely still that, that punk rock, like yep. the 90s, the mid-90s punk rock stuff. But then I kind of got interested in, like, local bands, Yep. And one of the first, like, well, actually it was, I don't even know how this happened, but one of the, one of the first local bands, I think one of the, I honestly think the first local band I found was your band, Ballpark. Ballpark, yep. Don't know how. Actually, I do. It was through the MIRC. So I think you'd put a was link it? there. Yeah, because you were the king of Lesson Jake Chaperon, and I love Lesson Jake. Yes, and so do I. <laughs> so... Um, and then I think you told me somehow, I, you know, you guys had a website, not many, not yeah, anyone really had a website uh, yeah. and you had like your songs up there so you could like download the songs and listen to them and you had the lyrics on them. It was sick. It was awesome. And then when I found out like that you guys were like from our area, yeah, that was just like crazy, you know, it was like, wow, there's these kids that are like our age and they're like playing shows like at real venues and supporting like international punk bands. And it was really yeah. cool. Um, yeah. But then when I probably first started going, like, so, so that was definitely a part of it. And I remember one of the first shows I saw you guys at was at Hurstville United Leagues Club. 
Yes, up the stairs. Yeah, so that was yeah. I, I played rugby league and I played for Hurstville uh, United. So that was okay, like, where? yeah, that was that was actually my um, the club. And I remember, yeah, I took a bunch of friends there, um, and it was really awesome. But then one of my friends on the after the show, I remember this was the first time I met Benny K as well. Shout out to Benny K. What a fucking him. We we thought Benny K was like the coolest person because he worked at Shady Hayes. Dude, like. I, like first of all, yeah, I still think he's the coolest person. We, we thought we, me and my friends thought he was the coolest because he had like a cool job because he worked at Shady Hayes. It was a surf store. We would go there every time we get back from uh, the beach because you know we catch a train back yep, from Huntsville, yep. and we'd go in there and like we never really spoke to him because we were like um, embarrassed almost. You know, like we looked yeah. up to him. But I remember him. He, he was at that show. We were like, oh, that's that guy from Shady Hayes. At the show. <laughs> How cool! Like yeah. it's like a local celebrity. Yeah, absolutely. Personal <laughs> celebrity. Uh, and then one of my friends ended up getting headbutted uh, by some gang show. guys. No, not the show, the KFC after the show. You oh, remember that KFC yeah, next yeah, to yeah. the um, Blockbuster? The Blockbuster, yeah. Yeah, so we had some long necks stashed in a bush out there and we went and dragged them after the show. And then, yeah, one of my friends got headbutted and that was, that was the end of the night. It shuts it down pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, so Ballpark was definitely the first kind of local Aussie band that I got into yep. um, on, on a, you know, on, on a super local level. But yeah, then yeah. the next one was um, $1 short. And Dude, yeah. that came through again, bodyboarding. Cause there was this, there was this bodyboarding video could suffice him three. I think it was. And there was um, about two or three ODS tracks on it. Like fear of falling was one of them. That was the one that I loved. Um, that, that I was like, oh, this song's sick. And it just went so well with the video. And it was like, yeah, for sure. I made those movies from the Central Coast, they were from the Central Coast. I didn't know all this at the time, but I just remember, like, going, this band's incredible. Um, side, Absolutely. side note, or a bit of fun trivia. Trivia, yeah. They were actually on Suffitem 2 as well, which was the predecessor. Yeah. However, they weren't called $1 Short at the time. I think they were called Nitro Boy. Okay. And they had a song on the second one before they were $1 short, but it was essentially $1 short. But yeah, $1 short was definitely the time. Um, you know, and then it was that, because I remember you guys used to play ODS a lot and you would support them. So oh, that was my first, like, going to pubs and get the Iron Duke, you know, um, going yeah. to the Iron Duke, all ages shows. There was always a lot of all ages shows. I remember seeing, like, Diesel Boy um, at the Iron Duke. Madonna Short as well. You guys a bunch. Yeah. Unpaid debt. The Mad Dash. Um, yeah, a whole bunch of stuff. And I, I would go to the. I would go to the because I was like 15, 16 at this time. Yeah. Um, and they they were the shows that I, I really really got into. And obviously like the international bands come out, but I was I was loving that whole. I just loved it. It just opened up this new world for me. There's something I want to get into around that same time that kind of happened with you, which is hey, I guess you got your wills. Well. Yeah. Set your future out. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Um, here's, here's what happened. So when I was, when we were really into like the alternative side, I still, I still like that alternative Seattle, you know, Northwest scene. Sound. Yep. Yeah. And there was a documentary that came out. I can't remember what year I was in, maybe in year eight or year nine, and it was called Hype. Do you remember uh, that documentary? I went to, I went to, um, Cinemas on George Street. To, I, I took a, I jigged a day off. Or okay. I skipped a day in school and went and watched it at the cinemas. Well, I thanks, think for, you were there thanks for ruining my story because that's oh. what, 
Sorry, go on. We, we had our swimming carnival and me and my friends went there. So if you were there, we were at the same screening. So I can't imagine yeah. it was like playing more than once. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, not at all. Street, no, yeah. 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 I went and saw that movie. Yeah. And you were there. And um, maybe you even tipped us off about it. Maybe you tipped me off about it on MIRC or something. You're like, oh, we're going to go see this thing. I was like, oh. Because no, I also I, thought you were the coolest dude too. Because it came out in 96 and – Look, I may have been I may have been an IRC like with King back then, but I don't remember being on the internet that early, if that okay. makes sense. Yeah. Like but mm. fucked if I know how I would have found out about it. Like yeah. I think I, I think I saw a thing in the newspaper, in the Daily Telegraph. Like they just had like yeah. a water page. That's what it. I want to say too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. How I, that's how I found out about the walk tour. The first walk tour I went to in Manly was a quarter page ad in the paper. I didn't know any paper. of those bands. Um but I knew it was punk rock and I liked punk. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. I, I didn't know who Blink-22 were. The only reason I knew Pennywise was because um, one of my friend's older brothers loved him and he's like, oh, we're going we're gonna to go go see Pennywise and Blink. Blink, you love so, Blink. So Pennywise, you hadn't like you, you hadn't come across them on um, surfing videos or whatnot? No, so Pennywise, were, so Pennywise were a lot more into the actual stand-up surfing scene. They oh, never surfed okay, themselves right. and they were in a lot of those movies. Um, yep. The momentum. Momentum was the first one that used punk rock in like any video that's got to do like surfing. Yeah. Or waveboarding. So it started with stand up definitely. Um, but no, I wasn't that I wasn't that aware of, of Pennywise yet. But I as soon as I saw them and as soon as I heard some records, I fell in love. Um, awesome. So yeah, and you know, Blink yeah. Blink I saw at, you know, that that warped tour and they yeah. played at two or three PM in the afternoon. Yeah, it was fucking hot. And I remember I remember them playing Damn It. And yeah. I was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> I changed my life, yeah. I actually, uh, I've, got a, I've got a good story about Warp Tour. I'm all about, I'm all about stories. Okay, so, so, yeah, Warp, Warp Tour was my first, okay, Warp Tour was my second festival. My first, my, really my first one was Surf Skate Slam at Maroubra Beach. Did you go to that? Which one did you go to? I went to the first one with um, Silverchair. Silverchair, Toe to Toe, Grinspoon, Friends of Rom, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think I don't know if there's any internationals on it. Sprung Monkey. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sprung Monkey played it, but and they were the only international. That was my first. That was my first music festival without my parents. Not that, I, not that I went to a music festival with my parents, but you know when they said, okay, you can you can go yep. to this yeah. Yeah. With friends, um, and it was cool. It was everything I liked. Like so I had surfing, had skateboarding, and had music. Yeah. Um, had music, yeah. But Warped Tour was yeah definitely kind of the life changer. And I remember going there and there's a couple of a couple of bands really stuck out for me that day. Um, Body Jar. I didn't know who Body Jar were, but they had like this awesome mosh pit because, you know, you go to the stage, you, you go in the mosh pit and you crowd surf. That was like the fun. That's why you went to these shows. Yep, yep. And I remember Body Jar and then this band's awesome. I remember Friends of Rom playing on like the back of a truck. Yes. Um, yeah. And I remember very vividly The Living End. I remember Prisoner of Society. I hadn't heard it yet. I didn't, I didn't think the song hadn't blown up yet. Um, and I remember, I remember the plan and obviously Blink and Pennywise and I remember the Vandals because uh, yeah, Water Naked. Naked. Yep, exactly. Uh, yeah. Tones, <laughs> all that sort of stuff. But, but the funny thing is, so I was like, what was this? 97 Warped. I was 13 years old. So I, you know, I, I went to that show and then four years later when I came, remember when I came back five years later, 2002, I was, um, I had four amusement only who were on the label on, on the tour. Yep. So I kind of like hitchhiked around 
on that on the tour, like on just on the east coast. Like I had yeah, a pass yeah. because I was doing I was an intern at the time for at Michael Chug, and they were the promoter. So okay. I managed to get a all access pass, but I, but they wouldn't look after me as far as like transport or accommodation. You had to get like, yourself. Yeah, every, you're just on your own, and I, and I just hustled. And I was like 17. I wasn't even 18 at the time, and I yeah. had no money, but I just managed to uh, <laughs> to get get to the Gold Coast and home safely, and go to about four or five of the shows and just hang out with you know my favorite bands. It was, it was sick. I was by myself, yeah. literally by myself. Um, but the, but the funny the story really is two years ago, July 2016. Uh, I moved. I moved to the states in February 2016 for my company, which I run now, Locals, which is like you know an experience platform. We can do these really cool experiences. The first experience that we do in America is with the band's Warp Tour, right? So somehow, after all these years, I become friends with Kevin Lyman. Um, wow! And I first met him the first time we came to the states. He thought we were meeting him because we wanted to be the Warp Tour promoters in Australia. This is when we were when I was 18 years old, and. I was like, oh, no, we don't really know how to do that. Um, but we just wanted to meet you because we love Warped Tour and we'd love to have a relationship, you know, like yeah. for the future, trying to get the bands on Warped and, and all that sort of stuff. So we met him. Then I interviewed him for the documentary, obviously. Yep. And then I reconnected with him like, uh, you know, maybe three years ago or so to tell him about this company we were building locals. And he said, Is there any, if there's any way I can help, just let me know. We'd love to be part of it, like do a Warped awesome. experience. So the yeah. very first experience that we launched in America was, it was the coolest experience. It was go on the walk tour for a couple of days as Kevin Lyman's guest, which means you stay on his bus. So basically wow. you're in the shadow of heaven for a couple of days and see how the tour runs from, yeah, from the man himself. So it was like. From, yeah, the head honcho. Yeah. So you got, you know, all access pass, uh, you eat, you know, all the meals, the catering with the bands and the crew and all that sort of stuff, you know. Show packs up, you get on the bus, you drive to the next city, you sleep on the bunks. It, yep. Yeah, incredible, right? Yeah. One of the uh, one of my goals in life when I had the label, and I know we'll get into this properly, but was to get one of my bands, Australian bands, big enough that they would get a tour bus because you know there's no there's no tour bus culture in Australia. None at all. Yeah, and I just always thought it was so cool, and I always wanted to get a band, get on the bus, and I get so jealous when like some of these like kind of bands that would like do no touring, like they they did essentially didn't exist like six months ago and then all of a sudden they were so hyped like jet and stuff like that you know and then all of a sudden yeah. they'd be touring across america with, um tour buses and you know granted they were the a old big band yeah but, but you know coming from that kind of punk rock ethos it was like the bands that we grew up listening to or you played in like you work you just worked really hard like you were around for so long before you got a break and you yeah. just played she shows after she show after she show and you tour and you tour yeah. and you tour and you tour. Spending so much money to maintain it. Yeah. And, and you know, even like bands like Blink who got massive, like they did that as well. So yeah. it was definitely, you know, this ethos of you just work really hard and you just play shows and you play shows and you tour and tour and you build this organic kind of fan base. And, you know, I, one of the goals was to get one of the our Aussie bands to that stage because I just wanted to go on a tour bus. And I just wanted yeah. to like sleep in a bar and, <laughs> and do that thing. Yep. And we never managed to do it. Like I... I didn't succeed succeed in that in that wish that goal. However, through the new company locals, <laughs> yeah. I'm able to you know do this experience uh, with Kevin and Warp Tour, and we sold it out. Like we announced it, like we put it on our site, and then Warped put it on their Instagram, and it sold out. We only had it was you know two spots. It was like it wasn't even that expensive. I think it was like three grand. Um, yeah. and you you had to fly. It was like 
you had to fly you there. Had to get to it. You had to yeah. get to it. But once you were there, like you didn't need money really because it was like all the meals were provided and your accommodations yeah. provided and, and all that sort of stuff. And it was just it was just for three days. Um, just, and, right, before you go on, did you did, did you did Kevin say okay? I'm looking at my diary and here's the best three days. Or the person would be like, they well, choose. Look, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, he just said yeah, whatever, whatever they whatever whatever's easiest for whatever dates they want to do. Obviously, you had to check back in with him and make sure that was fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we sold it out within a minute of it going live. So this is our first thing we've done in America since I moved here. And I was like, I was like, we made it. We're onto something. Yeah, moving to America was the best decision ever made. Yeah. So we, so we sold this thing, and then we we're having people, you know, email separately, being like, "I'll give you ten thousand dollars for this. I'll give you twenty thousand dollars." Like people wanted to do it so badly. This experience. Jesus. Yeah. It was, and it was the first and last actual consumer experience I did because since then we've moved like a B two B platform. We just sell to companies, experiences with companies. And um, anyway, I remember emailing with Kevin about the experience and being like, you know, I, I can only imagine how busy you are, like, you know, every day. Um, I'll come along and I'll just chaperone the people. So the people that like end up buying the experience with like these two girls. Yeah. Um, like young, like one was like 18 and one was like 21. Yeah. And he's like, you know, like I'll just make sure they're like, everything's cool. No one does anything silly, all that sort yeah. of stuff. And he was like, that's, he goes, it's fine. Like we've done stuff, we've done stuff, you know, people before, like you don't have to come out. I was like, no, you know, Kevin, like I'll just, I'll just, I'll just come out and make sure it's cool. Like, I don't want them to get in your way. I just, I want to make this as, as smooth as a, you know, experience as possible for everyone, your crew and your staff included. Yep. He's like, yeah, it's really no big thing. Like it's fine. And I just said, oh, and he goes, okay, fine. You can come. Like, <laughs> he just, he just saw straight through it. Yeah. And you know, I was angry at So I go out. And um, we started in, in Mansfield, which I don't know if you know. Wait, was it Mansfield? No, uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania. Scranton, you've probably never heard of it. I'd never heard of it before, but it's actually where the U.S. office is set. Like that's the town. No, um, the U.S., the, the show, oh, the office. sorry. Okay, yeah, right. Yeah, that's okay. where that's yeah. It's just like it's a really small little place. Yeah. So anyway, I ended up going out on the tour and I see Kevin and I'm on the bus and I remember after what the, the first show um, I actually got quite emotional because I remember I was standing, I forget, I think I was watching like New Fan Glory on Yellow Card or I can't remember who the band was I was yeah. watching. But I kind of got emotional just thinking of like, how did I get, you know what I mean? Like my life yeah. has come full circle. This is yeah. so weird. I, I did. I, I had an emotional moment. I didn't cry. I just had like, this emotional moment. Yes. I, I myself, imagine it would have been really overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. I was just like, this is so cool. And then I remember after the show packed up, I was sitting on the bus with Kevin and I was having a beer, and because that was that was always my biggest thing, I wanted to sit in the lounge room on the bus and have a beer. Yeah. And um, you know, I was sitting there and we're driving to wherever the next city, having a beer with Kevin on the bus, and I was like, "This is fucking cool." Like, you know, twenty years ago, whenever, like, I went to the walk tour as just like this little kid, like this punk kid, and now I'm sitting on the bus of the founder. You know. Yeah. with a legitimate reason and we're selling this experience and raising money for his charity and like giving these these girls this incredible experience as well that you know they absolutely yeah it was just, it was just really cool it was just like this yeah. really cool circle kind of thing so that that was my story that's insane that's that's a fantastic that's a fantastic story yeah yeah it was, it was so really cool yeah that's fucking and you got to sleep on the bus it was the best it was so comfy I don't know why people yeah. complain about it. like those little the little bunks yeah. yeah awesome. I, I just couldn't do the bottom one. I don't know why, but I couldn't like uh, the, yeah. the one at feet foot level. I, I couldn't get down with that. 
I, I didn't have to do that. I was actually at the top. Oh, powerful move. Yeah. Um, okay, but so you talked to um you talked about earlier before you wanted to get one of your bands. Yeah. Let's talk about let's talk about Jai and Jai Par and Below Par Records. Yes, yes, totally. So I, I digressed a little bit because I was talking about hype. But when oh, we that's went right. To- yeah, we were too. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get back to that. Yeah. And I went to the cinema to watch that movie, which I thought was awesome. And you know how they hooked me to go to that movie? Was they advertised on the flyer that they were doing, um, it was the first live performance of Smells Like Teen Spirit, captured on film. You remember that? They had that like, on, the, on the flyer. I remember, on the, I remember watching it in the doco, but I don't, I don't remember seeing it on the flyer, no. Okay, that's how, the, that's how we went. So a bunch of my friends were swimming carnival. We jigged swimming carnival to go to... Uh, George Street and watched the movie and I didn't realise it at the time but one of the things that I took away from it mainly was um, the sub-pop guys Bruce and Jonathan right because the whole it's really about sub-pop that, that film yeah it's it's yeah they they kind of sneak the Nirvana aspect to get people going yes. but yeah it's sub-pop yeah it's really about sub-pop and I just thought like how cool that these guys like created this like started built a community essentially around this music and um you know, I don't know. It wasn't like the next day, but it, it definitely instilled something in me without even without even being conscious about it. I guess, um, but I just thought that that was really cool. And then I guess as I was getting more into the punk rock and finding out about record labels like Fat Records and Epitaph, and figuring out that oh shit, like every Fat Records release is essentially good. Every Epitaph or nearly every Epitaph release is like essentially good. Yeah. And then finding out that those labels were started by like guys that were in Bad Religion and No Effects. Yep. I just started to get a lot of respect for the idea of a record label. And, um, you know, we actually probably more started Below Par, which was the name of the label, because of Sub Pop. Even though we didn't want to be an alternative grunge label, yeah. we wanted to be like a, a punk rock label or a pop punk label, if you call it. Um, but it was definitely it was definitely hype, the, the film, and it was Sub Pop that kind of like instilled that in us. And then, yeah, I think just one day, me and me and Mark, Mark C and our friend Chalko, we were talking and we were like, let's start a record label. And we didn't know what that meant apart from hype. Uh, we yeah. didn't know anyone in the music industry. We had no, there was nothing there um, for us. There was no real book. Like there was nothing. It was just like an I idea. Yeah. And that day, I mean, this is, you know, this is a good representation of who I am as a person. When I get an idea, like I was saying, I, I dig deep into things. Yeah. Um, and if I get really excited about it, I just go and do it. And I'll, I'll figure yeah. the rest out later. So I went to the Department of Fair Trade in the afternoon, registered the name for 120 bucks, and Below Par Records was born. And came home. My grandma was at our house. My grandma would look after us one day a week to cook dinner. My mum was at work. Your mum's yeah, side of the family. Yeah, yep. mum's mum. And I said, oh, grandma, I started a record label. And she's like, no, you didn't. And she, didn't, or she also didn't know what a record label was. I was yeah. like, yeah, I did. <laughs> And I kind of showed her the, the certificate. She's like, oh, that's interesting. And then my mom came home and showed my mom, and they're like, cool, but they didn't really understand yeah. um, like what it was. But yeah, that that was the start. That was that was the start of Blow Par. The name came from golf. So uh, we played golf for school sport towards the end of school. Okay. So we were in year eleven at this time. And um, yep. my favorite movie growing up was Happy Gilmore. And okay. powerful. Yep. Yeah. Still one of the best movies of all time. Yeah, you can't hate it. No. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was basically doing the time to go home there ball 
and I knelt on yep. the green and the golf course already hated us anyway, me and my friends, because we considered ourselves kind of like golf punks in yes, a way. Like, yes. And uh, we didn't have respect. We had no respect for the game yeah, or for yeah, the course. The game. Yeah. So <laughs> they wanted to get rid of us for so long. They saw me kneeling. They said that's against regulations. They, I got banned from the course, which is Bexley Golf Course. And because yeah. I got banned from the course, I actually just got banned from school sport in general. And that was kind of where the name came from. It was like a fuck you to golf, even though I like golf now. Um, so yeah, below par. Cause it, it just kind of worked and it was, it kind of works, you know, in a punk rock, um, self deprecating way as well. Right. Like below yeah, par is actually good, like but it also sounds shit. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so, so started that at 16. Um, there was no real vision apart from we just wanted to have like a cool punk rock label, um, in Sydney, in Australia and put out like, compilation CDs like, you know, the, the Fat Records comps and their Punkorama series yep. on Epitaph, um, but, you know, with, with bands that we liked. And that was that was it. We had, you know, we had 500 bucks each, Mark and I, and we invested that and we were able to print 500 CDs of Caddy of the Year, which is um, the first CD that we released. And that we just did that through emailing bands online, through mp3.com and, and whatever, and the bands like, you know, Unpaid Debt was on it. And I think you guys have broken up by this stage. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, ballpark work. No, you were well, well done and dusted. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. the first the first caddy of the year, local bands, was um, Unpaid Debt, The Mad Dash, Never Pay Retail, New School Hero, Second Best, um, Anti-Skeptic were on there. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Who else was on there? Um None of our bands. We didn't have any bands at the time, but um, yeah. But yeah, it, it's funny. Like I'm, you know, it's it's new school hero. I'm still friends with those guys today. I don't know. It's yeah. it's, it's really funny. Yeah. So so printed 500 copies. Yeah. So printed 500 copies of the CD that you know we just used Drum Media. They had like services in the back in the classified section. Got a mate to drive us out to Castle Hill to drop off the CD. I did all the artwork. Um, they said they mastered it. They didn't really. It was yeah. The levels on that CD are so bad. Um, yeah. And then kind of our strategy for just selling it was just let's just sell it to friends. Um, we sold some at school. I'd take it everywhere I went, to parties, to shows. Like, you know, we I don't even know how I knew this. Like, but basically I was like, well, if the Mad Dash play a show, someone might buy this compilation. So any show that like unpaid debt, second best. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Playing, I'll just go to the shows with CDs in my bag and just put, say, can I just put these on the merch desk and, you know, they got to keep three bucks or something, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and we did like weird commission deals where like I'd give someone 10 CDs and um, they, yeah, again, they would get to keep three bucks, give us seven. Yep. And we got it in um, Soundgarden. Oh, yeah. In consignment. Yeah, and we got it in Utopia. And we just thought like that was the coolest thing to have like a CD that we put out in Utopia and Soundgarden yeah, yeah. was like yeah. rad. So that, that, was the, that was the humble beginnings, you know. Um, but we were just very ambitious. Absolutely, you were. Yeah. And so, what year was this? This was two thousand. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this was definitely like it was. It was a mixture of hype, the punk rock that I was listening to, and then getting really involved in the local scene, like your band and and, and those bands, and really becoming big fans of those bands and wanting to get involved somehow. Not having any musical ability or talent myself, what can we do? How can I get involved? And that was like start a label. Start a label. Yeah. Yeah, and then it just it just went from there. I, I I always whenever I think about you, whenever I think about Below Par Records, um, mm-hmm. you guys won that Nescafe grant. Yeah, 
yeah. won a Nescafe every year. Is it, have I made it up in my head, or mm. did you actually did you actually see an ad for the Nescafe, the the um grant, mm. and watch a band who fu- were fucking terrible who won it and thought I could do that because they're shit, and if they're <laughs> shit, then and I'm like, is that did I inv- did I imagine that, or is that really what happened? No, I don't. Unless okay. I said that once, uh, I don't think I did, but no. Okay. Um, so what prompted you to get the grant? Because obviously when, like getting that grant for 20 grand was a massive, yeah. like it's a massive injection of everything. Yeah, well, I mean, that like, that that pretty much led to everything in a sense. The whole history of Low Palm, we could do, I could do like an oral history one day. I could just write it out um, because everything led to something else. It was all yeah. stepping stones the whole way to the end. Um, but, you know, I, I remember seeing ads for the Nescafe Big Break on TV of people that had won it. So I knew that it existed. Um and we just had no capital. We had no investments. Our parents didn't give us money. Um, you know, yeah. the 500 bucks that I used was $500 I had saved. I was saving for a car. So instead of getting a car, I decided to put it into this label. And Mark had worked at McDonald's and had $500. We brought in a third partner, Matt, when he actually bought – he went to our school, was a year older than us, and he bought a copy of Caddy of the Year um, from Soundgarden and then, like, saw us at school and was like, hey, I want to get involved in this. And we said, okay, you can give us 1000 bucks." And you can be a third partner. So Dude, gives that's, a that's fantastic. <laughs> so gives, we, we thought it was so we could have had $1,000. Um, and you know what we did with it? We just bought, do you remember Silence of Seven? Yeah. Remember Todd from Silence of Seven? Yeah, yeah. So, so Todd um, worked in like a, a printing press up in the Northern Beaches. And we essentially yeah. just gave him a 1000 bucks, and he printed us some blowpipe shirts and some stickers, these really nice vinyl stickers, which are still, you can still find them today around the city and in Bexley and Hurstville. They haven't faded. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's what we spent money on. We thought, oh, no, we're going to market ourselves now. We're going to get these stickers. Again, we tried design, which we didn't even have a logo really. Um, so good. But, no, but so, yeah, Nescafe Big Rec was just, look, it was just a way to hopefully um, get some money. And, and we, had a, we had an interesting story because we were kids. So, yeah. you know, we were 16, 17 years old. Um, doing our HSC by now. So we started at the end of year 11, but by year 12 was kind of when we had put Caddy the year out and we're trying to sell it at school and, and shows and, and this. And, yeah, Nescafe um, just seemed like, okay, we need, we need, we need cash. We weren't making money really off selling these compilations for 10 bucks. Um, and, yeah, I just thought that we had a shot. I, look, I never thought we'd win it, I don't think. What would you buy? What would you think you'd win it? Like it's like like to be honest, I wouldn't mm. think if someone had said to me, "Oh, Joe's going to do this thing," I'd be like, "They're not going to fucking give him money." <laughs> like, you know, but seriously, they're, they're going to go like, "You're going to start a record label selling punk rock?" Okay, yeah, no. Well, I think you know. But this here's the thing, and I, and I think this this goes a long way in life in general. It's like by this time we by the time we'd entered, we'd done a bunch of stuff, so it wasn't like. Yeah. Give us money because we have an idea. It was like yeah. we already put out like two CDs, which I think was true. We put out, um, I think we put out Caddy two by then. Um, yeah. We were about to sign, or we had signed, but we didn't have a release yet. Some numbers, um, yeah. and I think I want to say I think we were just about to put out FAO. Yep. Um, so, so we were doing things and we had like, yeah. um, you know, the leader was one of the first bits of media. We got revolver, did a story on yeah. us. 
Um, and it was all about like there's these kids from Kingsford High School that started this record label, this punk rock label. And it was like, it, it, was, re- it was a really good media story. Yeah, especially, absolutely. Especially for Leah. But, but one of the biggest stories that came from it that I guess helped our cause was um, when I'd finished, so I'd, I'd just finished high school and figuring out like, you know, what's next. I really wanted to label, but the label wasn't making any money. Went to this like music manager's forum and Richard Kingsmill was there. And this was before okay. Rich Kingsman was the music director at Triple J, but he had yeah. Oz, the Oz Music Show. And he was he was there doing a talk, like a panel, and you should have seen how like overwhelmed he got when he got off the stage because there's all these managers just running to him with like oh, CDs. And, yeah, 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 like play my yeah. band, play my band. And he had like a box full of these CDs and you could just see it on his face, right? He's like, ugh. Just another day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah like, and um, I went up to him and, you know, just, I was so naive. I didn't understand anything. And I went up to him and what what I did is I'd get my mum to photocopy these um, articles at her work. So we had these big printouts of like the Revolver interview and the leader interview. Yeah. And I'd, and I'd always carry them around with me. I'd always carry year CDs in my backpack and press. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how I knew this, like to do this, but I just did it. And went up to Richard Kingsmill and I said, hey, Richard, um, I really enjoyed that. I said, I have a rec- I'm 17 years old, I have a record label. Um, it's a punk rock label. I'd love to give you a CD. He goes, how old are you? And I said, 17. And I, and I threw out this thing. I get revolver interview dust. And I gave it to him. And he kind of just looked at it. And he goes, this is actually cool. He goes, hang on a second. I gave him the CD. He, he wrote down um, a number, a phone number and a name. And he gave it to me. And he's like, call this number tomorrow. She, I forget her name. I think her name was Beth. She's a producer at Triple J. Tell her that you spoke to me um, and that we want to organize an interview with you guys so wow. yeah so i was like cool so i called the next day and i spoke to her and first she had no idea what i was talking about but i said oh, i spoke to richard and um you know the next wednesday richard actually played one of our one of the songs from caddy Year on oz music show and like credited it i don't know if you remember this on the triple j website they used to put the playlists up there online and they yeah. said credit and they credit like below par records and it was the first time like below par records was like on the internet on not our website it's, yeah now it's official yeah, yeah yeah and that was really cool Anyway, so they sent, um, when we are doing our HSC, they sent Steve Kinane to my house to interview Matt and I. And what it ended up becoming, that interview ended up becoming um, something called DIY Summer on Triple J. And they okay. used us as kind of like the DIY label. And so they interviewed oh, all these okay. people from music yeah. kind of companies. And then they just, but they kept replaying the interviews over the summer. And I guess, um, Chris O'Brien, who was managing like Area 7 at the time, yeah. for music only heard yeah, contacted us and was like, hey, I've got this band called For Music Only, who we knew. Um, do you want to, do you guys want to put the CD out? And that was kind of like the start of us starting to sign bands. So by the time we kind of had gone to Nescafe and, and entered and said, why this is going to work, uh, we had like a bunch of press and kind of CDs and we, we you know, we'd invested our own money. Um, we had no outside funding. So there was a story there. And I remember the, you know, it's a, it's a three-step process. So, you you know, it's an online application first, then a whittles down, and then there's another part of it. And then the third part is they bring in 20, the 20 finalists. Yep. They fly into Sydney, put you in a hotel, and then you do like a 15-minute pitch to the judges. Okay. And I don't really remember what my pitch was going to be, but I did know <laughs> that I got Jake read from some of your numbers so come down. Is, and I was like, I'm going to talk for a bit and I'm just going to get Jake to sing some songs. <laughs> so so what, Jake was in my pitch with an acoustic guitar. Like, 
Oh, okay. He played as well. Yep. Yeah. And um, I, I spoke about the label and what we were doing and, and our plans and Jake sang and they called me a few days later and they said, congratulations, you've won. Um, wow. And I was like, cool, now what? I'm like, oh, we're going to send you a check. And a few days later, I get this nondescript envelope with my name on it. And it's just a check for $20,000 from Nescafe. And it, it was no letter that came along with it. It wasn't like, you have to spend the money like this. You need, it was nothing. Yeah. It was like, here's $20,000 made out to yeah. blow power records. And we were just like, sweet. And the first thing we did was um, booked flights to the US. Yep. Set up all these meetings. Um, our initial our initial goal actually with the trip was we wanted to become the Australian distributors or arm um, of Drive Through Records. Okay. So we went we set up and we got a meeting with Richard and Stephanie, who were the owners of Drive Through. Um, we didn't become that, but we ended up signing these two at the time small bands from America um, who were yellow card and brand new. And then those bands just blew the fuck up. Oh dude. Do and, what? You know, and plus that plus the Four Amusement Only release was really successful for us. Some of your numbers was really successful for us. And then Kiss Chasey, you know, so it was just kind of like everything kind of came together at once. Um, who, were, who were brand new on before they were, before they so, made fucking game buses? Well, they, they were on a label called um, Triple Crown Records, which is like this indie, oh, of indie yeah. label out of, out of New York. So we licensed, um, and Razor and Tie with the distributor, so we licensed the first two records yeah. from them. Um, but we, we licensed... Deja on Tondu, Sight Unseen. Like, your favourite weapon was already out, and we yeah. love that record. But we, for us just to be able to do your favourite weapon, the manager was like, you've got to do the second record as well. But he hadn't even heard it yet. No one had heard it. Um, and we just said, yeah, okay. So we got, like, I remember the licences we got for that were like 1000 bucks or something <laughs> to licence those two records for Australia. That's insane. Yeah, and then we had no idea. And I remember when, when they sent, the manager sent me a burnt copy of Deja, um, and I got it, and it was first of all, it was so much. I wasn't expecting that at all. Like I was expecting like kind of like a pop punk record. Yeah, and like, it definitely wasn't. It wasn't, and I, but I remember. I mean, I, I knew from the second I listened to it when I finished it, I was like, this is going to be something. Like this is, and not just for us, but for the band, like for for music in general and for that scene. It was a statement. Yeah. It was a statement record, and I knew we had something, um, and that you know that kind of opened the door. That was the first record we ended up doing with EMI as a distributor. Yep. Um, so that really opened the door for us in, in a lot of ways. And it was all because kind of Nescafe Big Break, but then, you know, Nescafe Big Break doesn't happen without, first of all, us starting a record label, but me approaching Richard Kingsmill and, you know, yep. blah, blah, and blah, 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 blah. Before that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All related, though. It's a hell of a story. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's So I don't even know where to go from there. What, so what are you doing? What are you – actually, no, do we pick a song? No. Um, <laughs> let's, let's pick a song from that whole experience. Okay. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you credit here. I'm going to okay. do Roller Coaster by Ballpark because that was one of my favorite songs. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's where like, I got a lot of my friends into your bands because of that song. I, when I was um, pottering around this morning before, like we did, before we did this interview, yeah. it just dawned on me and I thought, Joe's going to pick a ballpark song. And I don't know if I'm ready for it, but if Joe wants to pick a ballpark song, I have to, I have to let that happen. Yeah. So let's listen to a ballpark song. Now in context, this was done in like 97. Yeah. And it was my first proper band. I shouldn't give it, I shouldn't, you know, there's no excuses. It is what it is. It's, a, it's my first band. Let's listen to Rollercoaster. Yeah. 
just another rainy day outside and it's dark and i am feeling tired i see people walking by and laughing in their colorful designs outside the world is brown and gray and holds nothing for me now i'm getting nowhere in life i can't decide whether i should stay or go one two three go stop talking like That's heavy, like fantastically heavy. Yeah, but seriously, I was like, like it just dawned on me, like Joe's going to pick a ballpark song. It would make perfect sense if he did. So yeah, you know what? I wasn't, I wasn't planning on it. I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to pick a ballpark song for this. It just, it really kind of like, I, I, I do, I do credit you with, um, you being the person that helped get me into that scene, like the local scene, and being really friendly to me, because um, I was like an outsider. I didn't know anyone. I wasn't like, you know, you. It was very clicky in in a lot of ways. Um, be always really cool um, and really nice and, and all that sort of stuff and it, it made me feel welcome so I appreciate that there you go what are you doing like you do, you've done a hell of a lot of stuff you can pick as much or as little as you want to talk about but like 1994 was pretty like if you want to talk about that it'd be fantastic but 1994 to me was fucking massive and I'm like and I, I'm not alone in that like it was a massive it was a perfect <laughs> summation of like a summary of that whole music, where it came from, where it ended up, and all that kind of jazz. Like, yeah. so you, what? yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. Yeah, um, like how did? It- yeah, so that's yeah. I was, I was actually talking about this last night with someone. Um, you know, my my life has kind of followed path uh, patterns, which is passion. Whatever I'm passionate yep. about, it's like that's what I want to do. I just don't see a point in doing stuff that I don't love. Um. And look, it's not an easy way to live because a lot of the time you essentially don't have any money for long periods of time because you're following something you're passionate about. And then, you know, I've I've been lucky enough or fortunate enough where I've just believed in it enough that good things have come. I believe if if you do things you're passionate about and you're good at it and you you know, you can be smart about it, like um, it follows, right? Yeah, for sure. So 
the film, which is probably one of my favorite things I've done in my life, uh, experience wise, but also could be considered one of my biggest failures, um, which I don't actually see it like that at all. But that basically came because, you know, I was doing the label and the label was so influenced by the music that I grew up listening to, which is, you know, the, the fat records, the epitaph stuff, the, all that sort of the 90, mid nineties punk rock. And I was kind of really getting into to films when I was kind of like, you know, like, like more indie films and documentary films around like 1920. And one documentary that really stuck out for me was um, this documentary called Dogtown and Z-Boys. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible film. And I was kind of watching that and I love that film so much. And I was just like, why hasn't someone made a film like this, but on 90s punk rock? Because obviously there was hype for the Northwest sound. Yep. Sound. There was nothing really on, on that 90s punk rock music. And I was just like, it'd be cool if someone did this. And then, you know, a year went by and there still wasn't one. And I was kind of getting a bit itchy feet a little bit at, at the label. Like I, I wanted to, I wanted to try new things. Yeah. And yeah, one day I was just like, fuck it. I'll do it. <laughs> so it's insane. Yeah. So I just kind of like kind of came up with this concept that was like Dogtown and Z boys, but for nineties punk rock, that was the concept. And that was all I had. Um, and I remember I was on a tour with Kiss Chasey, Kiss Chasey's first national tour, uh, headlining national tour. It's like a band that they, they, they'd broken through to the mainstream now. Yep. And I was shooting a documentary for Below Par and EMI. EMI was funding this documentary. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing even on that one. Like, you know, I was just running around with a camera and trying to figure out, piece together a story. Yeah. So I was on that. And, and one of my really good friends, Matt Wardle, who had a punk label in, in Perth, um, was just kind of like on the road with us just for fun. And we were flying from Perth. I'd always stay, the Kiss JC guys would always stay at his house when they were in WA and I'd stay at his house. We're on a, we're on a flight from Perth to Sydney and we're drinking some red wine. And I told him, he's like, you know, what, what's next to the label? And I said, oh, you know, here's what, here's a bunch of bands we want to sign or blah, 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 blah. Uh, but there's this other thing I'm working on, which I'm really excited about. And he's like, what's that? And I brought out my notebook and I was like, it's a punk rock documentary, kind of like Dogtown and Z-Boys, but about like, you know, like, Green Day and Blink and Rancid and Bad Religion and NoFX and all that sort of stuff. And he's like, that's awesome. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, has anyone done it? It's like, no, no one's, no one's done this yet. And he was like, do you reckon you could get the interviews? I was like, sure, why not? And he's like, okay. He's like, I reckon I could get money for this. I reckon I could get someone to like invest money. Invest in it, yeah. To, to do this. And I said, I said, well, if you can do that, you can be my producer. And he goes, done. <laughs> and and that was kind of the start of it and then we were all kind of like partners um and then you know because I, I had the idea for a while and i was kind of trying to get it up like i was talking to a few people in australia but no one was going to be able to help me yeah not at all. really yeah um i didn't know any of the band and that was the thing as well like a lot of people think because i had the label i kind of knew all of these artists lag wagon yeah. but i didn't i just listened to them i was just a fan and you know i'm, I'm 22 years old at the time and um, I ended up getting in contact with a friend of mine who's like an artist manager over here. It's a guy called Bill Silver. He like books the Hollywood Bowl. But at the time, yeah. he was managing Unwritten Law. And long, I mean, this is a story for another day, but I'd met Scott Russo once um, and they'd just been dropped from Interscope. Unwritten Law had just been dropped from Interscope and I was out and another friend was like, oh, Jai's got a label in Australia. And he was like, cool, we should speak to my manager. Because we wanted to, we were going to try and sign London Ball for Australia. 
okay. they'd signed by, but after they got dropped, they assigned to Atlantic, to Lava Records. Um, but we became friends with this guy called Bill, and he gave us an unwritten law song for one of the Caddy V compilations that we did. So I emailed Bill and said, hey, Bill, I know, because Bill used to also manage Blink in the early yeah. days. And I was like, hey, Bill, I've got this idea for this film, uh, and I think I can get funding. Do you want to be an executive producer? <laughs> and he just went, sure. So basically his, his you know, duties, uh, his job was just to open some doors for us. And he started that off really well by introducing us to Jim Gurnow, who managed The Offspring. So we essentially had Dexter Holland was like one of the first people that said they'd do an interview with us. Um, Tom DeLong, Blink-182 were broken up by this stage, but Tom DeLong said he would do one and Rick DeVoe as well, who was managing Blink's manager. Um, I knew John Feldman from Goldfinger because something with numbers had supported them and, and we'd become friendly and he said he would do it. Um, and that was kind of it. And didn't know anyone else. And I remember uh, having a meeting with the investor. This was like two or three weeks before we were meant to go to the States to shoot, start shooting the documentary. And he was like, hey, so have you got all the interviews lined up? I was like, yeah. But, of course we do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we did. And, yeah, it was just like we landed and then we figured it out. Yeah. yeah. One person would lead us to another person. Like I remember, um, I think I think it was Stu Harvey that put me in touch with Joey Cape. And I remember emailing Joey Cape about it, and he was just like, "Love it! I'd love to do this." He's like, "Have you spoken to, you know, Mike Melfex?" And I was like, "Yeah, no, but obviously I want to speak to that Mike." Yeah, he's and, pretty crucial to it all. So. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, he's like, "Cool." He CC'd Mike into it, and Mike was just like, "Sure, all right, all right I'll do it." Like, you know, like I don't think you really. Yeah. Didn't care that much, yeah. But um, Joey was great because what Joey did just to make sure that we actually got Mike was like we did it at Joey's house. So we did like Mike first in Joey's living room and then we did Joey downstairs in the studio on the same day. So he was like really instrumental. Um, He also introduced us to Tony Sly, RIP. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then it kind of just just grew grew from there. You know, everyone, everyone led someone else. Like I don't know, have you heard the Tim Armstrong story? Yes, yeah. but tell it because it's fantastic. <laughs> All right. Um, so, you know, we're, we're in the States. We're trying to make this documentary. We really don't have, like, you know, the, the big the big three. The, first of all, the big three, Green Day. It's really Green Day is, like, so instrumental to this. Uh, but then, you know, Blink-22 and the Offspring commercially are the big three. But then, like, the essentials are, you know, Rancid, Operation Ivy, Bad Religion, No Effects, you could say. Yeah. And... We basically, I think, I think Greg Graffin had said he would do it, but just kind of, you know, friend because he was a friend of Bill's, but wasn't really committed. And Rancid, for like, just getting in touch with Tim Armstrong, it's just like one of the hardest things to do. So I can imagine. Yeah, we, he doesn't seem very tech savvy. No, no. So he doesn't seem like he checks his emails every ten minutes. You know, I've had his email address for like ten years. I don't think yeah. it's, I don't even know if it's real. I've never, I've, sent, <laughs> I've sent him emails. I've never ever got responses. No, never. Yeah. I don't know if it's, it's real email. Um, but I'm in Santa Monica one day and I get a phone call from a number I don't recognize. And I answer the phone and, and the person on the other is like, hey, is this Jai? I'm like, yeah. It's like, hey, hey man, it's Tim, Tim Armstrong from Rancid. 
I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm like, yeah. And I, I'm like, I'm like, awesome. How, how are you doing, man? He's like, yeah. He's like, yeah. You're making a documentary on 90s punk rock. I'm like, yeah. He's like, and you don't want to talk to Operation Ivy and Rancid. I was like, no, that's not true. I do. I'd love to talk to you guys. I'd love, you know, of course. He's yeah. like, you can't make a documentary on punk rock and not talk to Operation Ivy. Rancid. I'm like, it's, I know. I want to. I just, I didn't know how to get in touch with <laughs> Hangs up on me, right? Good. Hangs Cheers, up on me. I'm just like, my friend's like, who's that? Because they could see I was freaking out. Like, I, the way that I said it just now, I'm like acting kind of cool. But like, I wasn't cool. I, oh, was I could like, imagine. Yeah, I was like, yeah. oh my God, what? no, Tim. Like, ah, you know, <laughs> let me explain myself. Give me, give me more than a minute. So anyway, 10 minutes later, he calls back, apologizes, says, you know, I just get really passionate about, you know, this, this music is my life. This, this scene is my life. And I just want to make sure it's getting done. It's getting done properly. And I go, hundred percent. And he's like, do you want to get lunch tomorrow? And I was like, yes, I do. So ended up, uh, he's like, all right, we'll meet, meet at the Epitaph offices until the lake and we'll get lunch. So we meet. Oh, because he was living in LA at the time? Yeah. So he lives in LA. He lives in, yep. um, in Silver Lake. So Silver Lake, yeah. he, yeah. So he, we met him, uh, the next day for lunch and he was just like, Super, super nice. And he was like, you guys are interviewing Brett? You've got to interview Brett. And this is, you know, Brett Gurowitz from Bad Religion. Yep. Epitaph founder. Epitaph founder, yep. And I was like, we want to interview Brett. <laughs> He's like, oh, we'll just, go, we'll just go speak to him now. So, like, Tim just, like, marches us up to his office. Wow. We just walk in and um, Tim's like, Brett, Brett. And Brett, you can see Brett was, like, busy and not that interested. Yeah. And he's like, Brett. Gotta meet these guys. They're filmmakers from Australia. They're making punk rock documentary. You gotta speak to them. Brett's like, yeah, Tim, no worries. Like, <laughs> this guy. <kind of like, laughs> but you know, he was, he was persistent, and um, we kind of just stayed up there. And then Brett, Brett, then engaged with us and was asking us about the film and where we're from in Australia, and then obviously so. I'm just super nice. I mean, he's yeah. super nice. He's like, thank guys. Like, um, you know, if you want anything, go down to the, you know, the storeroom and grab whatever you want, which we did. Um, so we got a bunch of shirts and CDs and it was awesome. Um, but then we go have, we go have lunch with Tim and Chris from Hellcat who's running his label, Hellcat. Yep. And Tim says to us like, Tim's like, Hey guys, like, do you guys need a place to stay? And we're like, no, thanks. Cause we had a budget. Um, and we had this house in Hollywood Hills for like six weeks. We thought we were going to be able to shoot everything in six weeks all the interviews. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously we didn't get anywhere near that. So six weeks goes by, we've done like 20% of what we need to do interview wise. Jesus. We got no money. We had to send two of our crew home, including our director of photography and our sound guy. And now Matt Wardle, who's my producer, who's like never held a camera in his life, is shooting these interviews. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we're like, fuck, we like we need somewhere to stay. And like, what about remember when Tim offered us? We're like, no. I mean, so like, whatever. Well, let's just so I just sent Tim a text. Hey Tim, remember when you said you remember that offer? Yeah. And he was like, 100%. Here's my address. And I think he thought it was going to be for like a couple of days. Like, stay at his house because there's a spare room. This is a really nice house. And so we're like, and uh, we ended up staying there for like a month. Wow. And it was one of the most surreal experiences because we love Branted. And all of a sudden, we're like living with the singer, the songwriter, you know? And yeah. He, Tim doesn't drink or anything. We, we would drink and we would go out at night and stuff, but 
we kind of stopped going out because it was more fun just like staying home, eating dinner and watching like Mad Men with him. Yeah. That's kind of what we did. We watched TV shows and, and talked about music and, and all this sort of stuff. And he was very interested in the project. Like he was always like, who are you guys interviewing tomorrow? And we're like, oh, we're going to interview like Fletcher from Pennywise. I said, oh, cool. I was like, tell Fletcher I said, what up? All right, cool. No worries. We'd get there and then Fletcher would say, oh, by the way, we're standing with Tim Armstrong. And he said to say, what up? Fletcher would be like, cool. Tell him I say hi. <laughs> I say, what up, back? Yeah. And we'd get home and I'd be like cutting up the interview. He was like kind of like, you know, just like sliding behind me. And like, yeah. I wouldn't even know he's out. Oh, oh, shit. And he'd be like, you tell Fletcher I said, what up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. He's like, what do you say? Like he said, say hi. He's like, cool. And then like slide back, slide away. <laughs> yeah. That was like every day. It was so funny. Um, That's insane. So yeah. So basically, you know, wanted wanted to make this film because um, it was like a passion project. You know, we had at this stage, I had money from the label. We sold half of our label to EMI. Yeah. First time in my life that I had money and I was able to, you know, we didn't get paid. The budget that we had for the film wasn't to put money in our own pockets. It was just to pay for the production. Yeah, travel and all that, that sort of stuff. But I had money from, you know, the label, my salary from label, but also selling half the label that I was like more than fine. So I was able to like go and do this passion project, um, you know, and then I ended up investing my own money into it, you know. Yeah. But it, it was just easily most incredible experience I've ever had in my life. Like I got to speak to all of my favorite bands for over an hour at their houses most of the time or in the studio yeah. that they're making records just about all the stuff I always wanted to know. <laughs> yeah, all those all those questions that went, remained unanswered. Yeah. But you said earlier, you said right at the start of this, like right at the start of this, um, talking about the doco, mm. that you considered it was considered a failure, or people considered a failure, or it could be considered a failure. Why is that? Well, we never, we, we could never release the film legally, so it never oh, actually really? got a, a proper release. Yeah, because because of, of the music clearances. So we spent about a hundred and something thousand making it like just production. Right. So I was like, yep. Everything that, that goes into, into the project, but it didn't include music clearances. We had a very small budget for music and it's a music documentary. Originally I remember I had 10 songs that, okay, we're going to use these 10 songs in the film. We're going to pay, you know, you got to remember I came from the music industry. So I, I had a publishing company of EMI and I had a record label of EMI. So I knew how licensing worked. Yep. So, you know, you pay for the masters and then you pay for the copyright. So whatever X aside and Y aside, and I was kind of like, okay. But then when I started editing the actual film, I was like, fuck, we need so much more music. So because it's a music documentary. Yeah. So, you know, there's like 50-something tracks maybe. And not the whole tracks are in there, but it's just. But snippets of. Yeah, yeah. to tell the story. Because that's how, that's how you tell the story with the music. Yep. So basically it was going to end up costing us an extra like 300-something thousand. Jesus. The licenses just to put the film out legally. So we had distributors that wanted to put the film out. We had film festivals that were playing the film. We had distributors that had deals on the table for us. So I had a friend, I've got a friend in Calgary who said he saw it at a, at a Calgary film festival. Oh yeah. I went there. How do you, how do you get around that? Well, film festivals are easy. It doesn't matter. Like you can do whatever you want. Um, Right. Okay. I mean, it it depends on the festival. They, they, they might, some of them might say you have to have everything cleared before we will screen it. But it's like, what, what, what's a like a rights holder, like a, a publishing company? Like, what are they going to get from you? Like, they're going to sue you, and like, you're not—they're not, not going to get any money from a documentary filmmaker. They'll just say, "Don't do that again." Yeah, <laughs> slip on the wrist. Yeah, yeah. Like, they're not going to get anything. It's not worth their time. So, 
yeah, we, we played a couple of festivals um, and had distribution deals on the table for different territories. We had a marketing plan for how we wanted to roll it out. We wanted to roll it out like a tour. So what we were going okay. to do was um, we wanted to roll it out like basically play like small, because it wasn't going to be a theatrical film, but we wanted to just play some theaters in like key areas like San Diego, you know, play like cool small little theaters and then like have some of the bands from the film play. Like, so it's almost like a concert. So you have something like, you know, I think Pennywise, we're going to do some, no effects, we're going to do some, Lagwagon, I think. Um, it was awesome. Like people were super, the bands were super supportive. Um, yeah. And want to get involved. And we're trying to find a, a sponsor, like a corporate sponsor to help us be able to put this thing together. But it was going to be, we essentially, our, our rollout plan was going to be, we do a tour, we screen the film, uh, just, you know, one-off, one-off shows in certain cities that get punk rock, skateboarding and surfing. Yeah. And, yeah, and then it goes on to DVD. And this is pre-streaming services, Netflix. Netflix was around, but it was a DVD service. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was, the, the world was kind of changing. And the reason why we didn't, um, you know, want to move forward with getting that extra $300,000 was because we knew it was actually not worth it. Yeah. So the, re- the reason why it was going to be so expensive was we have to pay for these licenses, but it was also at a time when record labels was essentially at an all-time low, right? Yeah, uh, Revenue-wise, like people weren't buying records anymore and they were just trying to figure out what their business model was. And, you know, from the top down at labels and publishers, it's like licensing money, just yeah. licensing money. So 10 years earlier, if we had made the film, the labels would have looked at this as a commercial for the catalog. Like this, yeah, oh, this is awesome, this is going to sell more records for us. Yeah, because yeah. no, there's nothing negative in it against any of the bands. It's like it's a it's a love letter to the bands I grew up listening to. Very much so. The music yeah. that we love, you know, collectively, and um, you know, but it wasn't this time. So, and then you had you know the DVD market just wasn't what it was either. So it was just kind of like really fluxy time in a sense. Um, we ended up doing a Kickstarter, uh, which was successful, but still wasn't enough. We didn't raise like we were like one of the first Kickstarter pro- projects, like yeah. when it first launched. Uh, like we were on the front page of Kickstarter. This is like 2009, um, you know, but it wasn't enough to get it across the line. And then, the line, yeah. you know, if I had that extra money, like I, I wouldn't have personally invested in it because I just knew that no one was actually going to buy the DVD. Like it wasn't, yeah. it was never going to recoup because people weren't buying DVDs and it wasn't a theatrical film. It's a very niche documentary. Yeah, very much so. So we kind of just had to make a decision. Like it, it just really, um, you know, it, it, it sucked everything out of me. It, it was my life at this stage. Like I, had, I was doing nothing else except for living, eating, sleeping, breathing, everything, this film, and I just had to let it go. It was, yeah. it was a stage where I just had to let it go and I had to put it out there into the world. So, you know, one day we had a lot of, because we had a lot of like, interest on it as well people were always like where's this movie like i'd get hassled on my social media accounts and stuff from just random yeah. people all over the world that wanted to see it and we um yeah we just basically one day this kid came to my office this is when i was back in australia and um i gave him a usb with the film on it i said here you go do whatever you want and a week later it turned up and bit like torrent sites <laughs> and, um wow youtube and then it was on some guy in Germany uploaded it. Cause that, that, so that's the first way I saw it. Some Euro had it. And I was like, how the fuck does this Euro guy enjoy Doco? I Honestly, I don't know who that person is. I can honestly say that. I don't, I don't know who they are. It got taken down. Um, okay. we, got, we got cease and desist from the 
labels and the publishers, most most notably Universal, um, would send us in Australia. Would say, hey, you got to take this. You got to take the thing down, or we're going to tell YouTube to take it down. So they can't take it down because I didn't put it up. Yeah, and they'd be like, well, it's out of my hands. Yeah. yeah well, we're going to get it taken down. Then I'm going to do whatever you've got to do. <laughs> and then they took it down, and then a day later, it pops up on someone else's account. Pops back up. And then it's just take it down again and pop back up. And the, I, I worked out that it's been on YouTube alone, it's been viewed over a million times. Fuck. Which is awesome. So Yeah, so it's for, insane. For us, for me, it's it's a win that we created something, Matt and myself created this thing that people like love. You know, that's something that's important to people, um, important to me personally. Uh, and got out in the world and people saw it. But like it's a, I guess it's a financial failure, right? Like I lost money. I, yeah. I lost, I spent personally, I actually ended up spending like six figures um, on the film. But like I was saying to my friend last night at dinner, if I could go back in time and I could put that money into buying an apartment in Sydney or a house or whatever, I wouldn't change anything. I would 100% go down the route of making that film because even that film and like, you know, talking about um, their walk tour experience with Kevin um, you know, Tony Hawk, who has become a friend because of because Tony Hawk narrated the documentary for us. Um, we've done stuff with Tony through the company. So it actually ended up Bill Silver is an investor in locals now. Um, it actually set us up for the future or set me up more. Yeah. You know, like small, the relationships. Yeah. yeah. So yes, I guess, um, you know, fi- financial failure in a sense, but the irony of it, I don't know if this is probably not irony, um, Maybe just the, the cool thing about it is we're actually talking now to a bunch of the streaming services about getting it out legally because the world has changed from, you know, eight, nine yeah. years ago where there's all these companies and, and not just the Netflixes and the Amazons and the HBOs of the world, but also like, you know, Facebook and Verizon and these companies that are just hungry for content. Yeah, absolutely. And they're spending money on it. And um, they, they just want and need original content. And so we're talking to Apple Music. Like we're talking to, um, you know, a, a bunch of these different companies and we'll probably end up doing a deal this year for the documentary. It might be like a little bit of a re-edit here or there, whatever we need to do. Um, yeah. And it's to, for release next year because the film is called 1994, which is essentially 1994. It's a year that that music crossed over into the mainstream. Uh, next year's the, Yeah, next year's the 25th year anniversary of that. So... It makes just, perfect sense. It's just timely. It's funny, right? How how everything yeah. works out. Um, so yeah, so it probably will end up seeing an official release, but you know, it's been on the internet for eight years, um, just floating around and kind of building this like cult status. Dude, that's fucking amazing. I've always wondered how the fuck it turned up on some Euros YouTube account. Yeah, it was definitely through. It had to be through this kid. Or, was, yeah. or you know, we, we were sending out DVD screeners left, right, and center. People. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I thought it was a kid. Insane. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I need to t- I'm taking a moment from that story because I fucking love that. Do- like, I love it. Yeah. Like, I, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It's, yeah. And again, so many people I know just are like, this is, it's not only is it, not only is it what we grew up on, but it's so well done. Like, there's a whole bunch of punk, you know, punk docos out there, mm. but nothing is, nothing is well done as this. Thank you. In my opinion. Yeah. So, Appreciate okay. That. Tell us about locals. Like that's your obviously that's your current, yeah, um, your current baby, your current project. Yeah. Well, look, I don't, I don't want to go into too much of it because it's, I don't think it's going to be that relevant um, to to the podcast. But yeah, it's cool. But 
one thing that it has to do with is kind of like all the stories I've been telling throughout throughout this podcast have to do with like experiences that I've had in my life. Yeah. From going to shows, from going to the walk tour, from, you know, whatever it is, from making this documentary. They've been the things that I remember the most and the most fond of. So like, you know, when I, when I talk about these stories, they actually bring me joy. Like, cause I get nostalgic. Oh, fuck, that was so fun. Like I loved, yeah. I, loved I loved all that stuff. And I, what I realized was um, when I sold the low par records, like I said, it was the first time I had money in my life and I was able to buy things for the first time in my life, cars and whatever. And I ended up spending a bunch of money on just like dumb shit. And none as of that, as um, you would. yeah, but none of that dumb shit, like I don't even know where it is today, what it is. And it doesn't matter to me, but I spent money on like making this documentary or like traveling and, that was the stuff that like as I grow older increases in value instead of decreases in value like a you know like an asset, like a material thing. Yep. That's not included. Um so what I realized was like experiences were the things that made me the most happy, made me happiest. So locals kind of was born out of my love of these experiences, having lived, you know, such a fun life to that time. And I was like, we could create a platform for really cool experiences, not with celebrities, but with tastemakers that are like leaders in their field and people would pay money to go and do these experiences with people. Um, so, you yeah. know, like I spend a day in a studio with Seldman. Yeah, or, yeah. or whatever it is. So yeah, that yeah. was kind of like the genesis of, of where it came from. And it really just came from my own story. It really came from my own experiences because I knew how valuable they were to me and how can we make that add value to someone else's life. So that, that's what Locals is at its genesis. Um, and now the business model of it is we sell these experiences to companies used for like employee engagement, uh, reward and recognition, you know, client entertainment. So for example, you know, you're a salesperson, you, you might take prospects, uh, or customers to like an expensive dinner or go to like a Lakers game in a box, right? That's what like people do. Um, on our platform, if you knew that your client liked surfing, you could take them surfing with Taylor Knox, or if you knew they like basketball, why not go play a one-on-one game or play horse with Baron Davis and they go get lunch with them afterwards. So that's basically what we do. We use our experiences for for companies. Yeah, which is which is incredible. Yeah, and it's super fun, and that that's why I'm in the US. And you know, a lot of the, a lot of the people that I've met through my the, the music, my, my time in music and my time making the film, are actually involved um, in locals in, in one way or another. You know, so it's kind of come full circle. It's just kind of like a natural extension of you know what I was building up to. If everything you've done, yeah, yeah. yeah. So music, let's what like what does a what does a pop punk kid from the nineties listen to nowadays after he's done all this cool shit? So I got really burnt out on music, um, especially when I had the label because I was always trying to be like ahead of the curve. Like, like I never, even with Below Par, we were we would never really want to jump on the back of trends too much. Like when Screamo got really popular. Like we didn't want to sign a screamer band because like that was the obvious thing to do. It was way too obvious, yeah. yeah. We didn't want to do that. And maybe, you know, maybe it hurt us a little bit in the sense that we there was there was bands that like we could have signed that I know that like did pretty well. Um, but just yeah, from an ethical standpoint, like, I just I couldn't bring myself to do it. So we're always trying to be getting I was always trying to get ahead of it and um, you know, just like going and list, going to shows every night and listening to new bands and Probably by about 2007, I just got sick of it. And I was just like, you know what? I don't care about new music anymore. 
and I and I honestly say to people like I don't. It's not. This isn't one hundred percent true, but I say like I stopped listening to new music in two thousand seven. Like I'm not cool. I don't know what cool music is. I just know that the records that I grew up listening to, like, are still my favorite records to this day. Um, and I don't know if it's like everyone just thinks that, like, from any era that they grew up in. But like the music that we love, the music that we're passionate about, are, like. It's just timeless music in a sense. Like what you know, a band that I listen to, like I'll say I listen to every single day. Go on. Lesson Jake. Okay. I always listen to Lesson Jake. Um like newer stuff or like Hello Rough You and um, um You know, mainly older stuff. So yeah, like anything anything from like between Losing Streak and Anthem. I really liked Anthem as a record. Yeah. Um, anything between them, I, I love all of it. But yeah. I actually kind of got into, like, I mean, it's not a new record anymore. I think it came out, like, 2013. Um, they, they still write really great songs. Fantastic. I, like, I think, I think I've said it. This is this will be the third podcast I've said it on. Like, yeah. I put a um, lesson. I made a mix. Each year I make a mix CD for Nicole Yeah. Um, as, like, a Christmas present, just, like, a song she might like that I like and da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. And this year I put a lesson Jake song on it. Like and a relatively new lesson joke song on it. Hmm. Um, What's an example? Is it the art of selling out? Is that a song title? Yeah, the art of the, the art of selling yourself short. The science of that's the one. The science of selling yourself short. Yeah, yeah. put that, that on a mixed CD for Nicole because it's a fantastic jam. Yeah, that's a that's that's from Anthem. That's a great oh, is record. it okay? Yeah. Well, that's that just shows how out of the loop I am. I just. I assumed it was new because it wasn't on Hello Rock for you. There's this um, there's this record, yeah. Well, Anthem, I think Anthem was their most their most commercially successful record. That was a, that was released on Warner Brothers in like 2002, I think. Okay. That yeah. that song was a big song, um, like that was a single in America. Well, wow. that would have been around the time they did the shows with Bon Jovi. Uh, I couldn't tell you. Maybe. That. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But um, there's this album that they released in 2013 called "See the Light," and there's a song called okay. "Bless the Cracks." I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick that as my song. Fantastic! I'm, I'm so into it. "Bless the Cracks" it's called. Bless um, the Cracks. "See the Light." I never listened to this in 2013. I found it in the last couple of months. It's just like they're just such a good band. Like melodically, they write great pop songs. Um, it's super energetic, you know. They were on the Warp tour that um, I went to with the one that I went on with Kevin, and they just like ripped it. Like they, I watched them every day that I was on it. Um, they were the best band. They were the best band on Warp tour. Them and Some Forty One, I would say. Some Forty One were like really good. Um, but yeah, Lesson Jake is so good. They were my first, my first punk rock club show was Lesson Jake and Friends of Rom at Newtown RSL. You should know yourself. Yes, um, I do remember that. I met you through Lesson Jake, through Lesson Jake chat room on MIRC. Chat room. Yep. Um, I actually got into them originally from this PlayStation game called Street Skater. Do you remember that game? I do. I, do, I definitely do, but I can't think of what song was on it. They had Sugar in the Gas Tank and All My Best Friends are Metalheads. Oh, that's right. That's the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two cracking songs. And then, and then straight away I just went out and bought Losing Streak and Hello Rock You. I was like, sweet. I found my new favorite band. Um, so good. Yeah, but, you know, I'd see them, uh, I'd watch them on, on the walk tour. They were so good still to this day. And it was really funny. So, like, you know, the whole thing with walk tour is 
you know, it's all that community and the camaraderie between the bands, you know, after the, after the show, everyone like, a lot of the, the buses pull out like little barbecues and people would do bar- have barbecues and play soccer and listen to music and drink beers, you know, like yeah. that's, that's kind of thing. And it's, it's really cool. And, you know, because I guess the walk through it has like two factions. It has like the dad bands, which are now Les and Jake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Real big fisher on it as well. And then there was like all the younger bands, like Falling in Reverse and um, State Champs. And I, like, honestly, I don't know that much about these new bands. But, but, they would have parties and they, their parties were more like kind of like keggers, you know? They're for the younger bands. Yeah, for the younger bands. Yeah. Um, and then I remember like hanging out with Les and Jake guys after a show there behind their bus and I think it was one of the guys from Les and Jake, all real big fish. I think it was Les Jake brought like a telescope So on the on the tour. So what? <laughs> yeah. It's like the nerdier thing. So that's what dads do. Yeah, they just look at shit. Yeah. So, and you could tell they're all so excited about like it's like a holiday for them from their families. So they got yeah. to like hang out with their mates, drink beers, <laughs> look in telescopes. So like everyone else is raging, like the younger people, but they're just like sitting around looking in telescopes, drinking beers, telling stories. And I was like, I was definitely like, I'm not a dad, but I'm like you know in my you know early to mid thirties now, thirty three. Yeah. And that was definitely way more my scene now. I was like, I just want to hang out, drink some beers, look in telescopes. I was like, this is, yep. you know. That's fucking amazing. Yeah. So lesser Jake, lesser Cracks. And then the other stuff I'm listening to um, a lot is I, I go through phases all the time. Like I went through, um, do you remember the band New Edition, the boy band? With like oh, Bobby Brown and Johnny Gill. and Bobby Oh, yeah, Cohen. sorry. Of course, yeah, yeah. So there was this like BET Telly movie miniseries on them, um, like with actors, and I watched that and I got like, why nostalgic? Yeah, because I knew who New Edition were, uh, like Candy Girl maybe, but New Edition weren't that big in Australia. They were massive here, like they had like legit hits in America. And then, yeah. so I watched that thing, loved it, and then I went through this like really big like kind of New Jack Swing phase again because it made me nostalgic for when I was a kid. So I, I started listening to all that music. Now I'm going through this little kick, um, which is like. A lot of 80s power ballads. Right. Um, so one of my favourites at the moment is, it's funny, so I've got this playlist, it's called Jai's Hot 30 Countdown. So what Jai's Hot 30 Countdown is, is basically 30 songs that get interchanged every month, just depending on what, like, what I can listen to every single day without getting sick of. That makes sense, yeah. Less, there's always a Lesson Jake song on it for some reason. Um, the, the Lesson Jake song on this current one I've got is Scott Farkas Takes It On The Gym. Dude, that's such a good song. Such a good song. That's such a good song. But all the other bands on it, I'll read you some of the other artists. Um, Phil Collins, Go West, Paul Young, Mr. Mr., The Blam, Bruce Cockburn, Kenny Loggins, Peter Gabriel, Eric Carmen, Ario Speedwagon, Hart, Boy Meets Girl, Toto. So you kind of see where, where I'm going with this. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I just like those songs. I always have, by the way, liked like those sorts of songs. But right now, I'm going through the kick, so I'm just like got this playlist. Um, yeah. But one person that like I never kind of really had that much respect for. Well, not that I went up. That's the wrong thing to say. Not that I didn't have much respect for them, but was Kenny Loggins. Okay. Because he was just to me, he was just like the soundtrack guy. So you know, for those that don't oh, know, he did Top Gun, Top Gun, um, Footloose. Yep. Um, I think he he may have also done Holiday Road for National Lampoon's Vacation. Like yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, let me just check that. Did he do that? 
No, dice, doesn't look like he did that. But there's this song called, um, so this other song that I just heard, and I would have seen it in the movie, but I didn't realize, is a song called I'm All Right. From, what? It's a theme from Caddyshack. Of course, yes. You know the song I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I just heard it for the first time last week. Honestly. What did you had you did did you see Caddyshack and not Caddyshack, attention? Yeah, I seen Caddyshack yeah. some long ago and I might watch it tonight actually. Um but I was I just kind of like that that song popped up on you know on Spotify the Discover playlist. Yeah, I always yeah, listen yeah. to that. It's so spot on for me. It always gets me. Dude, it's scary how spot on it gets. Yeah. yeah. And then I when, if I like something I add it to a playlist. And um that was one and I added it and I just kind of put it on dry spot thirty countdown, not realizing and I was cooking the other day and that song came on and I was like, Who's this? What's this song? This is awesome. And when I saw it was Kenny Loggins, and then I was kind of like, I think this is my favorite song right now. So I want you to do the Lesson Jake one, but Kenny Loggins' I'm All Right is my favorite song as of today. Right. That's so good. Yeah. That's so good. You know what? We might bring the rules and put them both on. That would be cool. That's unreal. (laughs) Hey, Joe, this was fucking amazing. Thank you. I, like, is there anything else you want to say before we wrap it up? No, I mean, I'm sorry that I, I just kind of like waffled on a bit. Dude, it's what it's all about. <laughs> it's what it's all about. But it was fun. I like I like it. Yeah. I'm stoked. Yeah. I'm so stoked. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you for thinking of me. Thank you for um, you know, allowing me to tell my story. Thank you for spending the time. No, I can't. I can't wait to hear it. And um, definitely going to watch Caddyshack when we get off. There you go. And listen to more Labwagon. Definitely. Thank you very much. Speak to you soon, mate. See you, man. Thanks.
told you it was a long episode thanks for enduring um really hope you enjoyed it uh again got a got a bunch of episodes obviously coming up i still was trying to stick to that two a month thing uh recording 
heaps over the next kind of week or so so cool um look i just hope you're doing all right um please yeah as i said go speak to call someone call a friend tell them you love them call your sister call your brother call whoever just let them know that you dig them and make sure they're doing okay and hopefully you're doing okay as well um listen to the oblivious maximus podcast listen to the high fives podcast listen to the just the worst podcast listen to conditioned mint podcast these are all on your preferred option of listening to podcasts whether it be stitcher or the podcast app or whatever the fuck people use um there's some rad independence when i say independent like not backed by bazillion dollars and that kind of jazz uh podcasts um just people doing it because they love it because they enjoy it because whatever just for you know shits and giggles or get get the word out whatever before i forget um thanks for nicole for giving me letting me fuck off for a few hours each fortnight um to record this podcast i really appreciate it she'll never listen to it and that's fine i can hang with that even though i wrote a list of people i'd like to get on the podcast this year just as like a i don't know the secrets kind of you know how you like you write shit down and all like i want a ferrari and then you'll get a ferrari one of my one of my first people i wrote down was nicole and she laughed at it and that was the end of that but it's still on the list stranger things have happened so thanks to nicole and thanks to cody and yeah stay cool and uh we'll do it all again hopefully in a fortnight girl